This week's Creeps Cast is sponsored by HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreeps16 and use code MrCreeps16 for up to 16 free meals and 3 free gifts. Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. Boy am I excited for this week. What's better than a great batch of scary stories to give you the chills? Let's not waste any more time as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. My husband keeps asking the same question over and over and it's driving me up a wall. Written by Lighting Nations. My husband started telling dad jokes before he was old enough to even pour his own juice, so I may have missed a red flag or two, or four. But in my defense, this kind of juvenile behavior seemed very on-brand at the time. Let me give you some quick context. The entire first year Steven and I lived together, anytime that we exchanged, I love yous, he would quickly pinch my cheek and shout, Bzzzt, make your own dang waffles. Neither of us even liked waffles. He just got a kick out of us spoiling the moment. And although I would groan and roll my eyes, his dumb shtick cracked me up. Lord help me, it absolutely cracked me up. So when I shuffled into the kitchen one morning, fresh from sleep, his odd remark barely registered. Can you see me smile? I glanced at Stephen from across the center island. What? He leaned back and blinked. What? I thought you said something. He shrugged and shook his head. My imagination then. As I poured a cup of coffee, he said it again, quieter this time. Can you see me smile? Ah, here we go. Stephen's jokes were usually unfunny for that first week or two, until his relentless commitment tickled my funny bone. That's nice, honey, I said after a yawn. And then I circled the island and went in for a kiss, but instead, noticed a sore beneath his left nostril. Oh man, get some cream for that. On my way out of the room, Stephen began ratcheting coughs. Things seemed normal for the next few days. He periodically dropped the smile line mid-conversation and then continued on like normal. Once or twice, he even said it over the phone. Hey, hon, I'm at the store. Do we need any... Can you see me smile? Kitchen roll. Stephen picked up some cream for his increasingly gruesome scab, although that didn't seem to help. If anything, it made things worse. One evening, as we sat down to dinner... He slurped up some pasta, stared dead into my eyes, and twisted his mouth in this horrible pumpkin grin. Can you see me smile? I set down my fork. Okay, enough. It's been a week and I'm still not laughing. What are you talking about? That stupid, can you see me smile, can you see me smile thing. He cocked his head to the side. Huh? Don't even start. Just drop it already. The two of us went back and forth, him pushing me to explain myself, 
me growing steadily more agitated. Can you just admit this gag didn't land and move on? Well, uh, the only gags that do land are ones about airplanes, but I still don't understand what you're talking about. The tension immediately dissolved as I half groaned, half chuckled at a zinger. Later, as I soaked in the tub with two cucumber slices over my eyes, the door at the far side of the room creaked open. Stephen? I called. Another creak. Hello? I slid up, catching the slices. There was no one else in the steamy room. A draught had most likely blown the door open. I settled back into a comfortable position. Afterwards, while tiling myself off, I noticed a smiley face in the fogged up mirror above the sink, accompanied by the words, Can you see me smile? Stephen had already turned in for the night, so my lecture about boundaries got placed on hold until morning. Sometime after midnight, an awful dream about falling into this endless black void startled me awake. For a moment, the sensation carried into the real world, no doubt because the mattress had compressed beneath our combined weight. I opened my eyes in an attempt to escape the sensation of that awful dream, and I saw Stephen, who held himself directly above me, supported by his elbows and knees. His nose was pressed right up against mine. I bit down in a scream. Stephen's sore had spread. Now he looked like a toddler after devouring a plate of jam sandwiches. Was he picking at those oozing scabs? What the heck? I shouted. Immediately, he rolled into his half of the bed and faced the wall, pretending to snore. I thumped the back of his skull hard. Gave me a heart attack. He acted all innocent like he had just woke up, the corners of his mouth twitching, as though pulled by invisible strings. Ah, what was that for? He propped up against the backboard, one hand rubbing the bump across the back of his head, the other fingering a leaky sore under his chin. Turning away, I said, This is getting seriously old. You're not funny. He began to protest, but then entered a harsh coughing fit. It rose from deep inside his chest as he raced down the hallway. And go see a dermatologist, I shouted after him. When the alarm screeched, the far side of the bed was still empty. I crossed the upstairs landing and went into the bathroom, where Stephen stood before the sink, eyes fixed on his own reflection. He stretched and twisted his lips, which had gone pale at the corners, using his forefingers. From the doorway, I said, Look, sorry about last night, but you scared the crap out of me. Kill me act like the whole thing never happened. He pulled the sides of his mouth apart. The gums looked gray and unhealthy. I rolled my eyes. Fine. On my way across the hall, he shouted, can you see me smile? I called my mom from work who listened to me vent for nearly 20 minutes. He just won't give it a rest with this smiling thing. Just be upfront. Explain how much it's bothering you. That sounded reasonable. Stephen liked juvenile jokes, granted. 
but he wasn't a man-child or anything. Most likely, the two of us could get this straightened out and then go for a romantic meal someplace fancy. Back home, Stephen was in the downstairs lounge, furiously scribbling into a notebook. Can we talk? I asked. He stayed hunched forward, his attention fixated on his writing. Sorry if I was a little short-tempered last night. I didn't mean to hit you so hard. This joke, it really got under my skin. You think we could pretend this whole thing never happened? No response. Can you please answer me, or at least acknowledge that you're listening? I moved forward and snatched the notepad away. Stephen stood, suddenly enough to startle me, and he grabbed it back. For a split second, I glimpsed the words. Can you see me smile? Written over and over again. He grinned, exposing teeth of startling whiteness. Had he bleached them? This wasn't a joke anymore. It was a full-blown mental illness. Stephen, talk to me. What's wrong? He cleared his watery throat. Can you see me smile? He tossed the notebook aside and took a single step forward, arms outstretched. Thin trickles of blood ran along his chin from where he had compulsively nibbled his bottom lap. Can you see me smile? I retreated into the hallway. Stephen, can you see me smile? He coughed harshly before saying it again in a kind of hoarse growl. Thick wads of saliva flew from those pale lips. I spun on my heels and made for the door, Stephen walking after me. Can you see me smile? He followed me out of the house and across the front walkway. The second that I pulled the door of my Ford Escort shot, he drum rolled the window. Can you see me smile? Can you see me smile? As I slipped the vehicle into gear, he breathed over the glass to fog it up and wrote a backward, C-A-N. It's a miracle that I didn't plow him over, barreling out of that driveway in reverse. My eyes had gone all red and puffy by the time that I had made it to my mom's place. The police showed zero interest in Stephen's condition. Yeah, sure. Your husband keeps telling you to smile. We'll get right on that. Neither did the paramedics. You want us to send an ambulance over for a nasty rash? Stephen didn't respond to any of my messages, nor answer my calls. That night, I lay awake praying that he was okay, that he had made use of the mental health resources that I had sent over. Mom told me to steer clear until we could arrange for somebody to accompany me home. But laying in that cold, empty bed, I had terrible nightmares of Stephen doing something horrible. He needed help, and it couldn't wait. When I pulled into the driveway, the house was entirely dark. A nasty aroma hit me the second that I had pushed open the front door. A strangely familiar, coppery scent. There were dull thuds from somewhere upstairs. I slowly climbed the steps. In the landing, I flicked on the light and stifled a yelp. Scribbled up and down the walls were the words, Can you see me smile? Stephen had covered every inch of space from floor to ceiling, 
My heart kicked into a higher gear. The door to the bathroom sat slightly ajar. I tiptoed forward, the color of the writing switching from black to red, and what I assumed was a lipstick or paint. Gently, I rapped the door. Steven? I called, so low that I almost couldn't hear myself. And then after a little while, I went in. My husband was crouched in the corner naked, his back to me. He dragged a lobster red hand up and down the wall, smearing the word S-E-E over the cream-colored tiling, stopping only to replenish the ink by vomiting a thick red phlegm onto his fingers. It was blood. He had written those words with his own blood. Can you see me smile? He snarled along with a full-body spasm. There was something wrong with his voice. It sounded like a patient in a dentist chair with a prop in their mouth. The door made a creaking sound as I flinched back without meaning to. Stephen's head perked up. I spun into the hallway and raced toward the stairs. Halfway there, Stephen threw himself hard against the back of my legs, sending us both careening down the steps. I landed flat on my back. Directly above my head, two blurry light bulbs circled one another. I watched them go round and round until two Stevens, their mouth caked with dry, crusty red, leaned into my window of vision. He pinned me down, and between gruesome wheezes that slid up from his throat, he repeated those five words again and again. As my vision stabilized, I realized that it wasn't only blood on his face. Tendons and jaw muscles were exposed, pulling and vibrating like overtuned guitar strings. Fragments of bone even shined through in places. The lips and the surrounding area had been chewed or cut or scratched away. His cheeks hung loose. He brought us nose to nose, his exposed jaw inches from my mouth. Can you see me smile? That raw sewage breath absolutely reeked. A big purple tongue slid out of his mouth, finding its way inside my right nostril. As I lashed out against him, raw meat peeled away beneath my fingernails. He eventually made a sound like a cat hacking up a furball, exposed to teeth chattering and closing and crunching. I seized the opportunity by worming my way out from under him, and I made a break for the kitchen, where I armed myself with a steak knife. He followed me into the room, canines bared. I'm warning you, I screamed. He grinned, although I could tell only by the eyes, those mad eyes that almost seemed to laugh. As he shuffled forward, his pincer jaw clamped shut again and again. Finally, he lunged and I rammed the knife straight into him. Stephen's body went completely limp before slumping to the floor. The paramedics actually retched when they had arrived. Craziest thing I ever saw, said the taller of the pair. The police officer couldn't believe the story. Still a stammering mess, I recounted how Stephen had done this to himself before attacking me over and over. He took me to the station for an official statement, 
after which mom took me to her place, where for some odd reason, my mouth wouldn't stay closed. I sobbed into her shoulder, licking my lips again and again. My tongue had the texture of a carpet, plus something kept turning over in my gut. Acid reflux, maybe. Eventually, an urge to open my mouth and let out a giant, irresistible yawn overpowered me. But then mom reeled away, her face laced with concern. What do you mean, honey? I threw her a confused look, and I scratched my itchy mouth. What do you mean, what do I mean? She reached over and wiped a tear off my cheek. Why wouldn't I be able to see you smile? I'd like to extend a large thank you to a continuous Creepscast sponsor, HelloFresh. In case you haven't heard, HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit, and there's a good reason for that. Not only do they deliver the freshest and most delicious ingredients right to your doorstep, but they make it affordable and incredibly fun to cook, amazing meals right from home. My favorite part is their variety. HelloFresh has introduced me to hundreds of new meals that I would have never tried before signing up with them, and as a result, I've been able to expand my food horizons beyond what I ever thought possible. The other day, I whipped up a Zada beef bowl with hummus, spiced rice, and marinated fresh tomatoes. It's a Middle Eastern-inspired dish that I had never tried before, but wow, was it delicious. HelloFresh has been trying cuisines from all around the globe, and I've been extremely satisfied with both the taste and quality of every dish. An added benefit is that Green Chef is now owned by HelloFresh, and with a wider array of meal plans to choose from, there's something for everyone. I love switching between the brands, and now my listeners can enjoy both brands at a discount with me. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16. Use code MrCreep16 for up to 16 free meals and 3 free gifts. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16. And use code MrCreep16 for up to 16 free meals and 3 free gifts. Thank you so much once again to HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. I visited the Witch's Pond in Romania. Now something terrible is happening. Written by Adger T. Don't play with the fire. The locals in Romania used to say, I didn't understand it at first, although I knew that they were very superstitious people. I'm a construction engineer and have been recently sent to Romania with the company for a big contract that we won. The construction of a 27-floor building of business offices. I arrived in Bucharest Friday, and the project was set to begin on Monday, so I had the weekend for myself. I wanted to visit the city, have some fun, and since it was my first time in Romania, but I didn't know anyone. My colleague Kevin was going to arrive on Saturday, and the other members of the team had the flights booked on Sunday. It was 6pm and I was in my hotel room when the phone rang. It was Kevin. Hey man, how is it there? Tell me the first impression. Hey Kev, I don't really know yet. I mean the city looks nice and all but I haven't been anywhere yet. I'm still in the room. 
I wish I knew someone to go out tonight. I have a couple beers, but I guess I'll have to wait until tomorrow. I don't really like going out alone. Now, well, why don't you try to hang out with some of the locals? Kevin asked. And how would I do that? Go to some random strangers and ask them to hang out with me. I laughed. Try the local Reddit. Go and make a post and say that you're new in town and if there's anyone who wanted to go out for a beer or something. That's not a bad idea, Kev. I think I'll do that. I'll test the beer for you and tomorrow when we go out. I'll know which one is good. Yeah, you do that, man. Look, I gotta go. I'll see you tomorrow. Yep, bye, Kev. I got off the phone, opened my laptop, and I had it on Reddit. I created a post. Hello, everyone. I just arrived for the first time in Bucharest, and I was wondering if there's someone willing to show me around and to go offer a beer or something. P.S. I don't speak Romanian, so it'd be nice if you speak English. A few replies came, welcoming me to the city, wishing me a pleasant stay and stuff like that. And then the following reply came. Hi, man. We're a bunch of Reddit friends who frequently go out for beer. And we actually have a scheduled a meeting tonight. You can join us if you like. DM me for more details. I clicked on the poster account, reviewed it a bit, and found out that the guy was mostly interested in cats, technology, and cooking. I sent him a DM telling him that I'd like to join them, and to give me some details about where we're going and when to meet. He responded with the name of a bar, which looked pretty nice from the Google photos, and to be there outside at 9pm. And then he sent me his phone number. It was already 7.30pm by now, so I jumped in the shower, got dressed, and called an Uber. I made it to the bar 10 minutes earlier, and I saw five guys around their 20s waiting outside. I took my phone, and I called the number that he had sent me. And then I saw one of the guys picking up his phone and answering I'm here and I think I see you actually. I said a bit confused, because this could have also been just a coincidence of timing and phone calls. He looked around and he fixed on me and said, Yeah, that's us, come on over. I've always been an extrovert. However, meeting a new group of guys makes me feel a bit nervous, especially in a different country. I walked towards them. Hey guys, I'm Ross. It's nice to meet you. Well, hey Ross, I'm Andrea. The guy I spoke on the phone was said. And then he pointed to the other guys and said, This is Mihai, Dan, Angelo, and Bogdan. We headed inside and got ourselves a table and ordered some beers. The guy seemed curious about me. They made me feel like the center of the attention, but not in an awkward way. I found out that they're all students from different colleges. And they all met on the local Reddit some years ago and became friends. Angelo was studying to become a doctor. Mihai was passionate about music and he had two rap songs already. Bogdan was a very dedicated gamer which made him skip most of his classes and had to repeat the last year of the college. This made me laugh. Dan was trying to become a bodybuilder. And that was a visible thing. I told them about myself and what I do for a living about the project that we're about to start in Bucharest, and about my passion for horror. Well, 
If you like horror, we have a haunted lake here close to Bucharest. It's called the Witch's Pond, Angelo said. After a short pause, he continued, It is said that at night, witches are casting spells, and if you go there, bad things will happen. Not even the animals will drink from it. Oh, really? I've always been excited about stories with haunted places, but I never got the chance to visit one. So where is it exactly? I asked. You want to go there? Bogdan asked. Andre chuckled, put his beer on the table and said, It's about 15 kilometers outside of Bucharest, located in the middle of a forest. If I think about it, we lived our whole lives here, but we never thought of going there. What do you guys think? Should we go for it after we finish the beers? My first thought was not to go in the forest outside of Bucharest with some guys that I only met two hours ago. But after a bit of consideration, these guys looked nice and harmless. And I didn't feel threatened around them at all. Plus, I always wanted to visit a haunted place. Well, let's do it, I said firmly. The alcohol starting to kick in by this moment. Should we call an Uber? How do we reach there? Yeah, let's go. It'd be fun. Bogdan said and everyone agreed. Let's pay the tab and call for an Uber. We paid for the beers, went outside while Bogdan was on the Uber app trying to set the destination point to the Witch's Pond as close as he could. He had to do it manually since it had no exact address. Uh, the Uber should be here in about three minutes, guys. I requested for two cars since we have six people, Bogdan said. It was dark and I felt so excited for what I was going to do. My whole life was so monotonous. Work, home, the occasional night out. But for the first time in my life I was going to do something like this. Something I've always wanted. I felt the adrenaline rushing through my body. The cars arrived and I got into one with Andre and Angelo, while Bogdan, Mihai, and Dan got into the second car. The Uber driver looked a bit suspicious and frightened when he saw the destination point. And while noting this, Andre assured him that we were only some drunk guys trying to have some fun and visit the said haunted place, and that he doesn't really need to worry about it. We arrived after 20 minutes and got out of the car. It was pitch black and the headlights were the only source of light all the way out there. And the second car arrived about a minute later, being delayed due to catching a red light behind us. We all gathered and turned on our phone's flashlights. Mihai said, We should enter the forest from the other side of the road and walk straight for two minutes. Then we should reach the witch's pond. At least that's what Google says. It was cold outside and a very deep silence. The type of silence that doesn't feel right. Mihai went first and we followed. We climbed a small cliff and entered into the forest. We made our way to the witch's pond. Walking over dead branches and leaves brought a bit of a sound in the deep dead silence that we were surrounded by. After about one minute of walking through the forest, the wind started to blow. And all of a sudden, Mihai screams, Holy crap, guys, stop! There's a dead deer over here. A strong, rotten smell hit me, 
and I wanted to puke. The wind was now blowing the smell right towards us. We bypassed it, holding our breaths, and while I got next to it, I took a glance at the deer. Something was off. It didn't look like the deer had died from an animal attacker from some hunter. It had no visible wounds, and even if it smelled so bad, it didn't look like it was decomposing yet. I got down to my knees and saw her eyes wide open, and marks of blood poured out of them. I put my hand on her neck, and that's when I was shocked. It was still warm. Her entire body was still warm. I couldn't understand why there was this smell already present if the deer had died just moments before. I thought that there possibly could be another deer around, and the smell wasn't coming from this one, so I took a breath of air. That previous smell was ten times stronger now, and I can't explain what I felt. I can only say that it was the most awful feeling that I've ever felt. At the beginning, I felt a very strong nausea followed by a feeling of terror. I wanted to leave, but now my legs were weak, and I felt like I couldn't stand up. My vision started to get blurry, and before I knew it, Andre had grabbed my arm and helped me to stand up. What are you still doing here, man? I had to come back for you. We didn't even notice when you were left behind. How can you stay in this awful smell? He asked. There's something very wrong with this deer, Andrea, I said. Even if it smells like it was decomposing for a few days, it just died. I just put my hand on her body and it's still warm. That's impossible, man. Your mind's playing tricks on you. There's no way that her body is still warm. You felt that rotten smell. It has been at least three days since she died, Andre replied, with a bit of worry on his face at this moment. Come on, let's go. The boys are waiting for us, he continued. We headed back to the group and kept going forward. The air started to feel heavy and the cold was getting colder with how much we advanced towards the pond. We reached a zone where the trees stopped and found ourselves in a small circular area with a pond in the center. The vegetation seemed dead all over the place and the pond had a greenish color, the color of a sick water. The whole place looked so unnatural. I turned off the light of my phone, opened the camera, and took a picture of it. It was my first visit to a haunted place, so I had to have a memory of it. So, no witches here, Angelo said. And Mihai took a picture of me in front of the lake. Angelo headed towards the water and sat with his back at it. You're too close. Go a bit more near the lake, Mihai said. Angelo took a few steps behind and stepped on a moist piece of mud. Scared, he took unconsciously a few steps behind and landed in the water. Ah, come on. Now my feet are not only muddy, but I'm also wet. Angelo had a fury expression on his face while getting out of the pond, shaking his feet to a point with water. And by the look of that water, you're going to stink as well, I said. I'm not sharing the Uber with you on the way back. I chuckled. By that time, he didn't want to take the photo anymore and he came back to us. Dan, being amused by the whole situation, said, Let's sing something, in case there are some nearby animals. We'll scare them and leave the area. I nodded. 
It felt like a good idea to keep us safe from any stray dogs or maybe even wolves. Yeah, that, that is a good idea. We could do that for a minute and then go back to the main road and call for a cab, I said. I don't know any Romanian songs, but I can be the judge on who's the best singer. The guys all agreed on a song and started singing all at once. They were terrible, and a bunch of untalented drunk guys singing seemed so funny. I listened carefully, and to keep my promise and to nominate one winner, when all of a sudden I heard a great singing voice. The voice was pure. It was music to my ears, and that's when it hit me and I got frozen. It was a girl's voice. A few seconds later, my new friends heard it too, and stopped singing as they noticed. One by one, the voice kept singing. It was starting now to accelerate and change the tone from a sweet one to an angry and fast-paced flow. The sound was getting higher, and it seemed like we could hear it from all around us. The forest was hit by a hard wind, shaking all the trees, and the voice was starting to sound louder and louder. The song now was changed to what sounded like a Latin language incantation. The bushes around us started to move frenetically. The leaves were flying in the wind, and the wind was blowing so hard now that it was hard to hear anything besides it. But the voice was still as clear as before. Angelo fell on his knees with his head against his chest, and he started shouting. A strong smell of rot appeared, just like the one I had sensed on the deer, and it seemed like it was coming from him. The voice now started to shout the same thing as Angelo, and I needed no invitation to get the heck out of there. I ran as fast as I could, in the direction that I thought we came from, barely seeing in front of me and hoping that I wouldn't run into a tree. The guys followed as I heard them running and screaming behind me. A feeling of cold and a deep sleepiness took over me, but I had to fight it, to remain focused and get the heck out of that forest as soon as I could. The voice was still everywhere, as loud as before, but the wind started to blow even more ravishing. I was practically running as fast as my body could and jumping over dead tree trunks, looking left and right to see if there was anything in the woods, but there was nothing. Nothing that could be seen at least. I saw in front of around 50 meters the tree line ending, and I knew that I had headed the right way, and I was almost out of here. I looked behind and saw Mihai around 5 meters behind me, Dan and Bogdan around 30 meters behind us, still running. We're almost out! I had screamed to the boys. A very loud crack sounded in front of us. The sound scared me and I tripped. I got back up a few seconds and I kept running. A large tree fell in front of me and it just missed me by a few meters. It was a gigantic old tree, at least 300 years old, and it was snapped in half. The voice now transformed into an even angrier one, and the tonality sounded like screeching wheels. By this moment, Dan and Bogdan had reached us and we continued to run. We were practically seeing the road by now. 
A few more seconds had passed and we left the woods, reaching the main road. The voice was gone by now. The wind was not blowing any longer and the air felt normal again. I sat down on the road, heavily breathing and thinking that only I didn't trap. I looked at the guys and everyone was terrified. No one could say a thing. Mihai took out his phone and opened the cab app, enabled his geolocation and he ordered a car. We sat in silence waiting, and after about 20 minutes, the cab had arrived. We went inside and sat quietly for the whole road. I really wanted to say something, but I just couldn't. I just didn't know what to say. When we arrived in town, we headed straight to the police and told them what had happened, and that we had left Angelo behind. Of course, with all the drinking we had done earlier in the night and the completely bizarre story we told them, they didn't believe us. But they did go and investigate. The second day that I was there, I looked in the news and saw that a 23-year-old boy was found dead on the witch's pond. Cause of death. Heart attack. My phone rang and it startled me. It was Kevin and I answered. Hey Kev, what's going on? My man just landed in Bucharest, waiting for a cab to get me to the hotel. Can you please give me the address again? I lost it somehow. Yeah, no problem. I'll send you a share location right away, Kev. Oh, and I almost forgot. Do you? The phone exploded with static. I looked at my screen. It did now displayed a phone number that I didn't recognize. After a few seconds of static, I heard a very low voice, but I couldn't understand anything. I put my phone on speaker mode, and I pressed the volume button up to the max. At that moment, I froze. It said, How do I explain to my dad that I'm uncomfortable with the way that he watches me sleep? Written by Lighting Nations I'd be lying if I told you my hands weren't shaking as I lit those incense sticks. I propped them up in a little glass jar and set it between the candles. And then after a quick glance at Claire and Patrick, I said, Last chance to back out. You both sure you want to go through with this? Claire bit her bottom lip, nodding slightly, while Patrick rolled his eyes. We were on the hardwood floor next to my bed. Around us, the darkened house slept. Wait, you actually think this will work? Patrick asked. I wouldn't go to all this trouble if it didn't. And FYI, it definitely won't work if you don't drop the sarcasm. Spirits pick up on bad energies. 
So ghosts are less likely to appear around as skeptics. How convenient. Claire said. Give it a rest, Pat. Nobody forced you to join us. If you're not into it. She motioned to pass their sleeping bags towards the door. And despite her short stature, Claire had more bite in her bark than most people would assume. Patrick wrinkled his nose. He was a tall guy with rosy cheeks and tidy black hair. For a moment, it looked as though he might storm off. But instead, he grabbed his inhaler and took a puff. I'll cross my fingers something exciting happens. Will that do? Well, let's find out, I said. Oh, and one more thing. If anything does happen, don't scream. If my mom catches us, she'll throw a fit. She thinks that I'll accidentally summon a demon or something. The floral, woody scent of burning incense wafted through the room as I double-checked my notes and adjusted the candles. Patrick made small talk while I finished setting things up. Who are you trying to contact? He asked Claire. My sister, Alex. She had died in a car accident when I was little. And Patrick started to say, Is that how... But then stopped. Is that how I got my lamp? She finished. He shrunk back, deflated. Sorry. Oh, it's okay. The accident happened over on Bloomfield Avenue. You know that crossing before the bridge? I know it. There never used to be a traffic light there. Dad slowed down to look ahead, but he didn't see the oncoming truck. She stared at the floor, as though having a terrible vision of her sister. Alex died, but I got off with 36 stitches plus my John Wayne walk. And quickly, Patrick reached over and clasped her hands inside his. Let's hope she's listening tonight. Claire smiled, her brown eyes all shiny with tears. Patrick's eyes locked onto mine. I sighed. My grandpa. I want to contact my grandpa. He died four years ago, and he... The two of them gave me some space. My dad had problems. He was probably schizophrenic. He used to do some weird stuff, like stand in the corner and talk to walls. My heart performed little somersaults in my chest. I sorely wanted to tell them how I would wake up and find dad standing at the foot of my bed. A big creepy smile plastered across his face. But at that moment, it felt like he haunted me. And did they need to know how he stood rooted on the spot, periodically reaching forward to tickle the soles of my feet? Or how I would wake up and find him squatting alongside my bed, his nose pushed up against mine? What are you doing, Daddy? I would cry, and then he would whisper, Making sure you're safe, honey, while glancing at the walls. And younger me would picture monsters or ghosts or giant rats hidden in the shadow of the room. No, we could skip all that. I wanted to contact Grandpa, not Dad. I said, Mom tried to make him see a doctor, and when she finally kicked him out, he snapped. 
He used his spare key to come into the house after dark and... I hesitated. Images of dad shaking me awake and cradling my head against his chest. While waving a butcher knife around the room, reeled before my eyes. I swallowed a gulp. Then checked that I was safe. Mom freaked out, obviously. And the police got involved and it turned into this whole ordeal. That's when Grandpa stepped in. He was old, but he was built like a bulldozer. Up until the 70s, he was doing push-ups and swimming in legs. When Mom told him what had happened, he moved in with us. He even brought his gun. He had a gun, Patrick asked, shocked. I nodded. He grew up on a farm and was ex-army. There's some sort of exemption that you can get. Anyway, Dad sued for shared custody, and Grandpa said that if any social workers tried to take me away, he'd stick his foot so far up their behinds that they'd be able to taste his toe jam. A half-laugh, half-sob escaped from my mouth. One night, Dad broke in and carried me into his car. While Mom called the police, Grandpa grabbed his gun and drove after us. Dad kept saying that he'd... I paused to think carefully that he would come to rescue me. Somehow, Grandpa made him swerve off the road, and then Dad reached into the glove compartment, grabbed a knife and circled toward the hood. I remember Grandpa started shooting right as Dad had launched, and then they fell past the point where I could see... A little later, two officers arrived. They told me to close my eyes and they took me home. They think that Dad had planned to drive us off a bridge. Something about killing me to protect me. If Grandpa hadn't stepped in, I'd be dead. And I never even got a chance to say. As my voice trailed off, Patrick and Claire crawled forward to give me a hug. It felt nice. And Patrick said, I've got my fingers and toes crossed for you both. I cleared my throat and smiled. Okay, give me your hands and close your eyes. They did. We welcome any spirits listening to join our circle. Please make your presence known. Silence. If any of our loved ones are out there, we're here, we love you, and we're listening. Even though the house kept still, Claire squeezed my fingers a little tighter. It's okay, I said to her. Try to relax, it'll keep the channels clear. Addressing the room as a whole, I said. If you're out there, give us a sign. A window rattled in its housing. Claire's hand rattled too. I said... Don't panic, this is what we hoped for. Then, in a more soothing tone, I added, We are here. Whenever you are ready, reach out. A cold draught made all three of us shudder. There was a faint clatter like gentle knocking or mice across the floor. Claire pulled away and stifled a yelp. What's wrong? I asked, the ritual now abandoned. There was something there. She pointed past Patrick's shoulder. 
I looked at Patrick, who was sitting comfortably bored even. You feel anything? He shrugged. Was it Alex? He asked Claire. No. She replied sharply, her eyes darting around the room. Definitely not. What did it look like? I asked. I don't know, a shadow. And it was right above your head, Pat. Do you want to keep going? I asked. She contemplated for a moment. Let's give it another try, but if I see that thing again, I want to stop. Okay, give me your hands. I straightened my spine. We welcome any good spirits to join our circle. Claire's right hand got all moist and slippery. Mine did too. I repeated the mantra several times. As I did, those endless grinning jack-o'-lantern nightmares felt very, very close. Ever since Grandpa had died, I had suffered reoccurring dreams about giant faces embedded in the walls, their skin made of brick or cracked plaster. They would smile and yell and laugh. I felt constantly spied on. My therapist said those dreams were a manifestation of the trauma plus the guilt about Grandpa's death. He had died protecting me after all. Out of nowhere, it felt like we were being watched, that we weren't alone. I imagined shapes crouched around the room, barely visible against the candlelight. Patrick reeled his hand away, now breathing heavily, and made a series of quick, rhythmic grunts. Each exhale shook his entire body. Patrick, I asked concerned. It's the incense. He coughed into his closed fist several times before shaking his inhaler. Uh, keep going. My heart settled. After we linked back up, I repeated the mantra. For the next few minutes, there was absolute silence, interrupted only by Patrick's occasional sputters. Out of nowhere, a chill slid up my spine, across my shoulders and spreading out. I wondered whether the others felt this dizzying sense of presence. The presence swam over Claire and settled between us. It couldn't be anything corporeal. My heart kicked into a higher gear. Had Grandpa come to say goodbye? Invisible fingertips caressed my hair. My legs began to wobble. I peeked out of my right eye. The candles flickered, threatening to go out. My friends' misty breathing pulled together with the incense fumes. And for a moment, it almost looked as though there was something there. A face in the condensation. Summoning all of my courage, I whispered, Grandpa? Claire trembled. Patrick shuddered. Somebody walked over his grave. Grandpa would say he felt so close. If you're there, please. Before I could finish, Patrick fell onto the floor like a ragdoll, and my pulse skyrocketed. While Patrick rolled around fighting for air, Claire and I dove forward, knocking over the incense and the candles, and each grabbed an arm. His throat sounded like a rusty chainsaw struggling to start. Globs of saliva ran along his chin. Maybe Mom was right. 
Maybe we had invited some kind of demon into our circle. He went into furious convulsions and then grabbed my wrist and groaned, Inhaler, between ratcheted coughs. That settled me down a little. Patrick could barely manage a breath, but at least it was a human problem. I grabbed the inhaler, gave it a shake and held it up to his mouth, and I pushed the trigger. His coughing fit gradually tapered off into minor growls and sniffs. Are you okay? I asked, once he was well enough to sit up. He nodded. I strained to listen. The house stayed completely still. My mom hadn't heard the racket. Slouching back, I said, Okay, I guess we're done. Claire let out a sigh of relief, one hand against her chest. For the next few minutes, I rubbed Patrick's back until his breathing sounded normal again. And then my friends climbed in their sleeping bags while I cleared up the candles, hopped into bed and pulled up my blanket. Night, everyone, I said. Claire said goodnight while Patrick stayed, oddly quiet. None of us made contact, which had sucked, but at least we stayed safe. For a moment, I actually thought that weird presence had attacked Patrick. My heart was still beating a little too fast. But now it was gone. We could forget the whole thing ever happened. Sometime after midnight, that odd sense of presence had returned, hanging over my room like a storm cloud. I studied the room and everything in it. How come my friends hadn't stirred? There's no way anybody could sleep through this. It was like being trapped in a jungle, surrounded by trees and undergrowth, watched by unseen eyes. As I pulled the blanket over my head, that awful sensation seemed to swell. I steered my thoughts elsewhere, to how Grab would erase me from the play park to his car always giving me enough of a head start to win. Those fond memories dissolved when something shuffled across the wooden floor. Slowly, very slowly, I pulled the blanket down toward my chin. My nightshirt became a drenched rag against my back. I expected to see the faces in the walls staring down at me, grinning, laughing. But the walls were empty, Normal. For a moment, my pulse settled. But then once my eyes had adjusted to the gloom, I had to bite down on a scream. Because there is an out-of-place object peeking up over the foot of my bed. The top half of somebody's head. A pale face against the darkness. It was Patrick. Except he seemed different. His skin had grooves that weren't there before and the corners of his mouth were curled into an awful pumpkin grin. Still squatting low, he shuffled along around the edge of the bed and stopped directly beside me. Now there wasn't a single doubt on my mind that Patrick had been replaced, forced out, used as a mask by whatever entity invaded our seance. After swallowing a gulp, I worked up the courage to say, What are you doing, Pat? And then the figure reached forward, pushing those distorted lips right up against my ear, and whispered, Making sure you're safe, honey.
I was always told to stay out of the Appalachian wilderness. I should have listened. Written by Subaruligan. I grew up in southern Appalachia, in western North Carolina, 30 minutes outside of the town of Asheville. The hills and hollers of the Appalachian Mountains are some of the oldest mountains in the world, with some of the rock formations dating back over a billion years. That quite literally means they were here before there were terrestrial animals. As with most things that have been in the earth a long time, there are inexplicable anomalies both benevolent and malevolent. For example, the brown mountain lights. Never in my life have I felt threatened or uneasy when witnessing them from Wiseman's view. They're neither good nor evil. They just are. On the benevolent side, sometimes when you walk through an abandoned old church, up near mom and dad's property line, you can feel good, warm, and happy energy. It's like that first warm day of summer when the sunshine is not too hot but it's not too cold. Well, this story is not about one such anomaly. It's about something that was definitely malevolent. About a decade ago, I was in night school up at AB Tech, going to school for automotive mechanics. I would go into class at about 2pm. After I got off my part-time job and I would end up getting home at about 10.30pm, depending on the traffic. Every night, I drove the same road. In my old 1973 W200 Dodge pickup. Some nights it would get rather boring and I would take a different route home, jump off of I 40 and drive the back roads. On this particular evening, I decided to just stay on I 40 because I just wanted to go home and go to bed. It was Thursday and there was no class on Friday, and I wanted to get in bed early so I could go out into the woods and go hiking early tomorrow morning and watch the sun come up. As I jumped off of I-40 and onto the exit to where my parents lived at, the night seemed to get darker and none of the animals that I could hear through my rolled-down windows made any more noise. The cab of my truck became smaller and smaller, and my breathing quickened. I have never faced any kind of anxiety in my life, but at that moment, something felt off and there was no way I could put my finger on what it was. I came to a stop on the exit ramp, turned to go down the road, and I happened to notice that the gas station off the exit where mom and dad lived had no lights on. They were a 24-hour truck stop and always had lights on, but I didn't think about it again after noticing. I just chalked it up to the power being out, but I couldn't shake the feeling that something was definitely askew. I slowly shifted through all of my truck's old gears, not wanting to make any more noise than a pickup truck already did. I leaned over my steering wheel to look up at the moon through the windshield, and there were barely any stars visible, which was way out of the ordinary. If you've ever been to Appalachia, primarily the sparsely populated areas where I'm from, you can see the Milky Way on clear nights. An absence of stars back home is only due to cloud cover or whatever the heck went on this particular night. As I rounded a sharp left-hand curve and chugged through a straight stretch before the next right-hander, 
I looked at the ancient, decaying barn that I always gazed at when riding that stretch of road, and I thought about how long the thing had been here, and how many advancements and civilizations it had seen. For the split second that my gaze wandered, a very large, sickly-looking dog ran out in front of my truck, no more than ten feet in front of me. Mole Betsy was a good truck, but she didn't stop well. Thump, thump. I heard the fence post that I had left to my truck bounce up out of my bed and then back into it as I slid to a stop. My first thought was, oh god, now I have to go tell these neighbors that I ran over the dog. Ah, oh, crap. That stuff doesn't go real far with people around here. It can really kind of set them off, depending on the dog and the person. As I sat there, breathing in the smell of burning rubber, something else found its way into my nose. The stench of rotting flesh. It's not a smell that you ever forget once you smell it one time. I didn't pay much attention to it at the time. I just chalked it up to some rotting roadkill nearby. Finally, I thought to myself, let me go check and see who this dog belongs to. I pushed my clutch in. Shifted to reverse and as I looked in my rearview mirror, illuminated by the haunting glow of my reverse lamps, was the same dog. Only it wasn't on four legs anymore. It had stood up like a man. A man well over ten feet tall. Only then did it dawn on me that the front of my truck was every bit of five feet tall. And this dog was every bit of five feet tall at the shoulder on all fours. As it turned its head to look in the direction of my truck, I caught only a glimpse of this creature. It was not a dog and it was not a man. It was somewhere in between and at the same time entirely separate altogether. Its skin hung loose off of its emaciated and thin frame like a raccoon. Bits of matted fur and dirt and mud clung to its legs like a disease. The right arm seemed a little longer than the left and they both hung abnormally low, in relation to either animal this creature seemed to be. As it regained its senses, it turned and looked into the mirror like it knew exactly where I was sitting. The face was that of a man's, but the very edges of its face seemed to not be totally defined. They seemed to move and change like something you would see at a cellular level in a scientific documentary. There were no eyes, but only sockets where the eyes should have been. No hair in the skin that was dripping off of its face was a cold, lifeless gray color. The nose was short and shoved into its face, like a bulldog, but the teeth, the teeth still haunt me. It was definitely carnivorous, and true to form of the rest of its unnatural look, many of the teeth didn't seem to be arranged in a natural way in its mouth. They seemed to fill and spill forth from the indefinable face almost like they knew the horror they occupied, and they were searching for a way out. It stared through my life, into my eyes, and past my soul. It seemed like an eternity, but it could not have been more than five seconds that I sat there paralyzed. A light came out of the house next to the road, causing the creature to snap its gaze in that direction and tear off into the woods on its back two legs, just like a man. I jammed my old truck in first gear and roasted tires all the way through first, snatched second gear and drove as fast as I could home. 
When I got to the house, both of my parents were asleep. I went downstairs into my bedroom and loaded every firearm that I possessed and I locked all of the doors. I couldn't wake them up. Who the heck would believe that at 10.30 on a Thursday night? The basement was eerily quiet that night. Even their dogs that got up and crazy at outside animals at all hours of the night were dead silent. The old post and beam house didn't even creak or pop that night, as was usual. At about 3am, I started to finally get drowsy and as I went to lay my head down to get some sleep, so I could still attempt to go hiking the next morning, I smelled the stench of death again. It was faint at first, but it was definitely there. I thought to myself, you're just going crazy. None of that stuff was real. But as I dwelt on it, I became more and more noticeable until it filled the entire basement. My dad has a home office in the basement with two large glass doors that face Pisgah National Forest, an impenetrable 500,000 acre woods. I finally worked up the courage to walk out of my bedroom and into the basement living room with my little tactical 12 gauge loaded, tack light on. I covered the flashlight with my hand so as to not make my presence known until I need be. And as I turned right out of the living room into my father's office, I shined the light through the glass doors and at the edge of the woods, there stood the creature. It was motionless. It stared right into the light unafraid, with those soulless sockets devoid of eyes. I quickly covered my attack light, ran into the living room and flipped on the outdoor floodlights. And to my surprise, it was no longer standing at the edge of the woods, but between the house and the edge of the woods, still motionless. I swung the door open and fired every round that I had in its direction. I must have scored a couple of hits because it screeched an unearthly scream, like that of a woman being slaughtered as it took off into the woods. The dogs now went crazy. Mom and Dad woke up asking me what the heck I was doing. I told them that a bear had gotten in the trash and that I was scaring it away. They didn't believe me, but I knew they wouldn't believe the truth either. I didn't sleep that night or any time until the following Sunday. Everything seemed to return to normal, and I didn't think about the creature again until I met my wife about six years later. Her mother's house sits at the mouth of the holler, no more than four or five miles up the road from my mother and father's. Up on the side of the holler, there are kennels for her brother's hunting dogs. No longer in use and they haven't been in years, but the fence is still there and the concrete pad is still there too. It's a thing of great use when you need to quarantine an animal. Her great Pyrenees had gotten into a tussle with a raccoon, which of course he destroyed, but... His rabies vaccination had lapsed, so we had to keep him quarantined for a time. It didn't bother him. He kind of liked solitude anyway. This particular night that we were coming home from a movie date in a neighboring town was the last night of quarantine for him. So we walked up the trail using our phone flashlights to get to the kennel. And there he sat, patiently waiting, tail wagging happy to see us. We put him on a leash and started walking back to the house with him. As we were walking back through the darkness, I started to get the same feeling that I had felt the night that I had hit the creature in my truck. I didn't say anything so as to not alarm my wife. 
but then the smell came wafting in the breeze. She jokingly asked me, My God, what did you eat? You stink. And I half laughed, not being able to fully appreciate the joke for the horrors that raged within my mind. She immediately called on and asked me what was wrong, to which I could only reply, I'll tell you later. She grew up in the woods and around hunting and things of that nature her whole life, so she knew what I meant. She knew that we were being watched by something. When we could see the lights of the house from the trail to the kennel, when we heard it, there came barking from the kennel that sodded, just like the great Pyrenees that we had on a leash next to us. It was a perfect imitation. The Pyrenees, being a guardian dog, immediately sensed that something was wrong, and so we turned to face the danger, belting out deep barks and growls in that direction. Now, I don't know if you've ever had to drag a 150-pound dog, but it sucks and it is no easy task. I'm six feet tall and 240, and that was all that I could do to get him back to the house. The barking never ceased the entire time that we were running towards the house. In fact, it seemed to grow closer and closer until it seemed it was coming from inside my own head. Her mother heard the commotion and flipped the floodlights on as we made it into the fence of the yard, and I caught a glimpse of something coming to a dead stop at the end of where the light had reached, wheeling around and tearing off back into the darkness. My wife looks at me and goes, You want to tell me what the heck that was? To which I replied, Yes, let's go inside. I told her the story and she listened intently, hanging on every word. Her family came from a long line of granny witches and other supernatural healers of the Appalachians. So, her older sister came over the next morning with some herbs and chants to bless the property and to ward off evil. I suggested that we go up to the dog kennels and do them as well. When we got to the kennels, they were completely destroyed. The very concrete foundation was cracked, and the chain link fence was torn off of its posts. The dog houses were destroyed, and the place reeked of the stench that followed the creature. My wife's older sister just went about her business like normal, blessed the place, burned some herbs, and led us back into the property. When we got in the house, she wheeled about on us suddenly and instructed us very firmly to never go into the woods after dark, not until this thing left me alone. And to make a long story short, my wife joined the military and she ended up getting stationed in Delaware. Well, as someone who's lived around fairly large mountains and endless wilderness their entire life, Delaware is pretty terrible. At least, that's what my thought was when we first moved into the middle of a 50,000 plus population city. Fortunately, though, it didn't take us long to find a house in a sleepy little community further south. We purchased the house and moved in with haste. We were both very grateful and glad to be out of the city and into a rural setting again. The land in Delaware seems lifeless in comparison to Appalachia. The sparsely populated woods don't possess any energy that goes one way or the other. The ground doesn't seem to be alive like it is in Appalachia. Having not thought about the creature in a long time, I resumed my staying outside after dark and playing with our dogs in a rather large yard that borders a small patch of woods. Well, last night, I went outside to play with the dogs and as dark set in, I built a decent size to fire in my fire pit 
and consumed some good old-fashioned Appalachian Mountain cough syrup from a mason jar. And just as the fire was dying down, my American bulldog tore off towards the woods. He has a habit of running off to go on adventures, so my immediate instinct was to chase him down in the yard and tackle him so he couldn't get away. As I tackled his freaking 110-pound body to the ground and threw him in a fireman's carry over my shoulder, I heard him begin to bark. Only the bark was not coming from him. The only sound coming from him was a deep, rumbling growl, a noise that I had never heard him make before. It was a threatening noise, and something was definitely wrong And as I ran with him on my shoulders back to the house. The stench of death again began to fill the air. The two other dogs must have caught wind of what was happening, and met me at the back door which I threw open, slammed a shot, and locked in again loaded my firearms. How the heck could this thing have followed us 650 miles up here? As I flipped my floodlights on at the back side of my house, several of the bushes and small trees at the forest edge were still shaking like something had just run through them. My dogs went crazy all night, barking and howling and attempting to get out of the windows. I didn't sleep a bit, and I don't think I will for a while. I know for sure that I won't be in the woods after dark ever again in my life. Not until this thing is gone. If you ever get a chance to explore the multiverse, don't. Written by Mr. Mills 45. Site 12. January 23rd, 2021. After our old director of operations, Ted Bowser, was killed, he had been replaced with a new one by the name of Jennifer Wright, a younger and still very cynical but much less insufferable person. As to where she came from and how she got the position, heck if I know, but that's the standard here at the agency. You don't know more than you're supposed to. But after a shift in management, things had been a bit more relaxed lately. But that doesn't mean it was all sunshine and rainbows. Regardless, as a first-rank agent and mission supervisor, I was asked to sit in on a meeting between her and our still somewhat new head scientist, Dr. Julian Garth. I wasn't really speaking or actually adding much to the conversation and the discussion itself but I was more or less insurance in the event of a security issue. After all, we had gotten a lot of new people in these past several years. No, you don't get it. This isn't just cryptids or new weaponry. We're talking about something far bigger, far more groundbreaking. This could be the key to accessing unlimited resources. Who would stand in our way then, when we have infinite agents, guns, and money we wouldn't need to keep begging the Pentagon for even a single penny anymore. Came Dr. Garth as he held out a folder containing several important-looking documents in front of Jennifer. A portal? Really? She inquired in a tone that made it clear she was skeptical of these scientists' claims. Not just a portal, a gateway to another world, another Earth, potentially one that's just like this. I mean, look at these readings... This is more than just a discovery. This is an investment, 
that can mean we never have to truly spend another dollar ever again. Jennifer grabs the stack of documents, looking them over like a school teacher grading a student's paper. She held a shocked expression, but it was clear that her skepticism was still present nonetheless. And what if you're wrong? What if this leads to nothing and it's a dead end? She grilled after looking back up at Dr. Garth. It can't hurt to send one or two men through the gateway, can it? Just to see what's on the other side. He fires back. That's something you should already know. You want me to waste agents in the event the other end of this portal opens up into the core of the sun or something. Further research can be done. We still have enough remaining in the budget. But what I need is hope from you, and your approval to continue on the project past this point. I can have double this amount of data on your desk within a week. Garth went on, giving Jennifer a look that said he was desperate for her to accept his proposal. But instead of responding immediately, Jennifer stands up and lets out a slow exhale, looking straight ahead of me and causing me to perk up. What do you think of this? Are you willing to check out another world? With all due respect, ma'am, with everything we've seen in our decades and decades of being in operation, it can't be nearly as crazy as you're making it out to be. I think it could be worth a shot, but it should definitely be more than two agents and going in at a time. And unlike with Ted, my opinion actually seemed to hold some weight with her. She darted her eyes between Dr. Garth and me, contemplating her next words carefully. Fine, but you will be in charge of making sure the team we send in is properly briefed. You have one week to do thorough testing, and if you don't have an extensive report on my desk in exactly seven days from now, then it's not happening. Dr. Garth flashed me a thankful smile, pleased with my surprisingly persuasive response to her inquiry. And with that... She got up and calmly exited the room, although she had been firm about her terms. She didn't seem angry, just more skeptically curious. But seeing as she was the one in charge, I assumed she didn't want the weight of all the responsibility if things went horribly wrong. Over the next several days, Garth and I did as we were told. We got a four-team together including me, Agent Terrence, Agent Melody, and Agent Ward. Dr. Garth went through some testing with the rest of the site's science division and made sure the gateway was properly stable and tested. Other worlds, huh? Came Agent Ward as he finished lighting a cigarette before taking a few small puffs and blowing the smoke into his own face. Kinda sounds like a disaster waiting to happen. At least it's something different. Ever since we lost 16A exterminating cryptids, it's been a bit more difficult recently, Agent Melody added. Agent Ward simply snorted, as if trying to hold back audible laughter. Please, you really think we need that freak? Wherever he's off to now, he's probably wishing he still had us to hold his hands, or claws, or whatever the heck he had. Listen, Jennifer said that if it all goes well with this mission... We'll get a huge salary increase. So let's all put our backs into it and make sure that this really ends up being worth it. I interjected, clutching the grips of my assault rifle. And we ended up discussing for only a few minutes more before Dr. Garth and another scientist 
poked their head through the door of the briefing room, both of them harboring grins. It's time, he announced, hiding his schoolgirl-ass excitement. We journeyed over to the Block A laboratories before being led into a large, circular room with all sorts of contraptions and technology set up along the walls and ceiling. In all my years with the agency, it's one that I had never seen before. The light inside was dimming on and off repeatedly. The source, probably the tall but thin black void, is sitting just in front of the wall exactly opposite the door. It felt almost magnetic like it was sucking us in. The pulling force wasn't enough to knock anything around but paper and hair, but it was still there. Jennifer was in the room, along with a mission control rep who stared at these several seemingly blank monitors in front of him, before adjusting his glasses as if that would help. And due to the differences in frequencies, the signal of both your visor cameras and radios just won't be able to make it through the gateway, Dr. Garth explained, causing Melody, Terrence, and Ward and I to flash each other concerned looks. You all have exactly two hours to explore what's on the other side. Anyone who doesn't make it back within that time frame will be left behind and the gateway will be closed. We are expending a lot of energy and resources to even keep this thing open in the first place, Jennifer added in. Why were we told this in the briefing? Terrence asked demandingly. Dr. Garth and Jennifer simply ignored his question. And although I myself was also curious as to why we weren't told, I still needed to fill my role. So I slowly marched forward, waving at the rest of the team to follow behind. Were we potentially marching to our own deaths? Sure. But the description fit quite nearly everything we did in this job. But we were ignorant at the time as to what truly horrific nightmare was awaiting us on the other side. Something about the void was almost enchanting in a way, like I was just naturally drawn toward it. This wasn't exactly the kind of internal reaction that I was expecting myself to have, but it happened nonetheless. I got just within a foot away looking back at both Jennifer and Dr. Garth, hoping this was actually as truly worth it as we were hoping. But I couldn't hesitate any longer. I stepped into the portal preparing myself for what horrific things I may or may not have seen on the other side. It was rather disorienting at first, like the feeling you get going down a water slide for the first time. The euphoria itself didn't last very long, but it was potent in its short-lived existence. And before I even gave myself a chance to get a good look at what was on the other side, I immediately turned back to see if the team had followed me safely through the gate. First, emerged to Terrence, who appeared a bit dizzy and out of it before snapping back to his usual demeanor. Melody was second, looking around in both fascination and worry. And finally came Ward, who seemed rather unimpressed. And out of all three of these reactions, I didn't know which one I agreed with the most. It was more or less a healthy combination of Terrence's and Melody's. I turned back around laying eyes upon what looked to be an alternate version of the room that we were just in, except just much more beaten down and empty looking. And despite it being so simple, so plain on a first glance, it was fascinating. 
the multiverse was real. Oh, now this, uh, this is pretty trippy here. Ward announced, taking a few more glances around to make sure what he was seeing was real. And despite his lack of enthusiasm before her, I think the gravity of the situation was beginning to hit him. That doesn't mean it's safe. We should all keep our guard up, Terrence adds. All in all, he was correct, so we all moved forward, looking around for anything that could have possibly posed a threat. But as we stepped out into the hallway of this alternate Site-12 facility, we realized it wasn't in as good of a shape as ours was. Most of the lights were off and were flickering, giving the interior an eerie vibe, like something straight out of a child's nightmare. Our underbarrel flashlights helped, but only just a bit. I was shocked that they even ended up surviving the trap. We continued moving down the hallway. The silence in the building was deafening, and it was looking like this place would be completely empty with not much else going on until we got to the end of the science wing hall and into the main lobby area. I turned the corner, shining my flashlight at the hall just a few feet ahead, only to be put on edge when I got a glimpse of a long, jagged stain of blood running across the white-tiled floor. Blood that didn't look very old at first glance. It's not something we haven't seen before, I said, attempting to hide my admittedly unsettled move from the rest of the team. I was used to things going wrong out in the middle of a neighborhood, a forest or an abandoned factory, but this and a high-level security facility like ours, it just felt wrong. Not that we hadn't ever had breaches before, but whatever happened to this version of Site-12 must have been disastrous, and much more than a simple breach. Guess it's not turning out to be as fun as you had hoped, huh? Ward butted in, getting his own good look at the large bloodstain. We need to find out what happened here, I say, ignoring Ward's comment. It looks like things didn't turn out so well for this version of Site-12. You think? Terrence added sarcastically. We kept an eye on our surroundings, our guards were up, and our senses were running on high alert. Looking for whatever it was that might have been the reason that blood was there in the first place. But unfortunately for us, it wouldn't be long before we got our answer. No, please. We all immediately ran forward while gripping our rifles. The scream of the man had sounded like it was coming from around the corner at the end of the hallway in front of us. The team and I all dashed down it, quick to find the source of the blood-curdling cry for help. Whatever had caused this place to go all post-apocalyptic may have still been on the loose and still finishing up its rampage. Once we rounded the corner, we were only greeted by another hallway, one that was nearly identical to the same one in our universe with only a few small differences, such as pipe and tile placement. But none of that really mattered. What did matter, though, was the still barely alive agent at the end of it. He was fully geared up and dressed, just like us, but lying on his back in a pool of his own blood, with his rifle snapped in half lying next to him. We all rushed over to him, closing the distance in seconds, by the looks of things, it didn't look like he would be able to survive much longer. But at the very least, we would be able to get some info out of him about what had happened here. 
Although I or the rest of the team didn't recognize him as a doppelganger from our universe specifically, we still engaged him. I leaned down, wiping some blood away that was bubbling up in his mouth and dripping down his chin. What happened to you? I asked, attempting to use a somewhat soft tone towards the dying man. What did this? I could tell that he struggled with this answer. He was in no condition to really have a conversation of any kind. He tried to point behind me as if he wanted us to go that way. I turned and looked, only to not see anything of interest, besides several more mangled bodies of deceased agents. But I knew something did this to them, and it was still here. And with his choking gas, I couldn't help but let him suffer any longer, so I made the decision that I thought was right at the time. Melody, I said, looking up to her and nodding down at the dying agent before he slowly reached up and firmly gripped my arm with his left hand. But she didn't even have to figure out what it was that I wanted. She simply raised her weapon, pointed the barrel at the agent's head, and fired off a round to put him out of his misery. It would have had to have happened either way, but I had always been a strong believer that a quick death was better than suffering. Even if we did have the tools or ability to help him, we weren't allowed to, not with how fatally wounded he was. Once an agent was either mortally wounded or disabled beyond the ability to physically perform their job permanently, they were to be terminated. The higher ups said that it cost a lot more money to keep the useless ones alive than it is to get rid of them altogether. Their words, not mine. Is this really worth it? We should probably have a few more agents here if we're going to be dealing with something like this. Taryn spoke up. One of the Wendigos we kept for experimentation probably got loose. Melody responded. Besides, Jennifer will be pissed if we come back this early on. Before anyone could fire back, we all snapped to attention after hearing a brief but potent scratching noise coming from down the hallway in the direction that the agent had pointed to earlier on. What the heck was that? Terrence grilled, sounding agitated and demanding of an answer. Probably the thing that did this. Melody snapped, not taking her eyes off the hall. We should let it come to us, I suggested. We have the advantage by being alert and ready. Going down there and turning the corner could mean walking right into a trap. Let's split into groups of two. One duo goes down the hallway and the other watches their back, said Terrence. The scratching sound emerged again, this time seemingly being a bit closer to us. It sounded like it was coming from the ceiling, but looking up revealed nothing. And part of me thought that I was just losing it, and that this whole alternate universe thing was getting to my head. What was that right above us? asked Ward, attempting to maintain a professional tone. It might be something in the vents, just keep your eyes peeled. If only it were that simple. I was afraid to admit that I was a bit unsettled. No matter how tough and hardened you are, the feeling of being hunted, being watched, and being stalked like prey will always scare you at least a little bit. Yeah, about that splitting up thing, I'm gonna have to go ahead and say no on that. It's safety in numbers, I pronounced. We all either have to move together or not at all, but we're not splitting up and asking to get ourselves killed. 
so we all moved forward as one, the scratching noise briefly popping up here and there above us. We all kept our line of sight locked in different directions just in case whatever it was tried to attack from a certain angle. But despite our best efforts and despite the fact I was comforted by the other agent's presence, I still felt like we were hilariously outgunned by whatever it was that was stalking us. I didn't let the team know that, of course. The last thing they need is their leader freaking out in front of them. Let's try to get somewhere more secure. This is too open and too vulnerable. We're sitting ducks in this hallway. I said in a tone that I dictated I was in no mood for debate. You think this version of the site as the safe room where they found Dr. West's bloodstains in our universe? Terrence inquired. Yeah, they should. Everything's been similar enough so far. If we can make it, we can try and hunger down until we can figure out a way to bait this thing and kill it. Bait me? Came a strange, bass-filled, monstrous, and just barely human-sounding voice from above, causing all of us to immediately turn off and fire our weapons, blasting whatever it was full of holes. But apparently it saw this coming, quickly darting across the ceiling and using the cover of the darkness and flickering lights to its advantage. From what milliseconds of glimpses I caught, though, it was big as far as height, but thin in width. Part of me had even thought it might have been an arachnid in nature. I hadn't gotten a good enough look to fully conclude. We seized our fire. The logical solution would have been to put on our night vision goggles so we could see what we were fighting much better. But with the main lights flickering at inconsistent rates, we could potentially damage our eyesight. Not to mention they weren't even working to begin with. What in the heck was that? Ward cursed. His earlier display of confidence now fully faded away. But instead of being able to answer him myself, the mystery creature spoke up instead, that same commanding voice piercing through the hallway. I am what you wanted me to be all along. A weapon, it responded, this time coming from around the corner. Tough talk for something that hides, Melody shouted attempting to maintain a sense of dominance in the situation. The only thing I ever hid was my hatred for you, for Dr. John, and every single human in this horrendous organization. The voice fired back, unaware that we weren't native to this version of the agency. However, it didn't take me too long to piece together what, or rather who, this voice belonged to. Someone that had been an important part of our operations years ago but had gone rogue a creature created by the scientists in our universe Site-12 for the purpose of helping us hunt down and kill cryptids more efficiently. Subject 16A What did we ever do to you? We fed you, gave you a home, and provided with you all the resources you needed to survive. Sounds to me like you're just ungrateful, I cried out, attempting to agitate this alternate 16A so he would emerge. It was in our best interest to assume that he had similar abilities and strength to the one that we used to know. If that was actually the case, we'd be more easily able to take him down. And judging by his comment about Dr. John, it appears that he had more than likely been the one to create him in this dimension. Because in our reality, he had fled the agency with him and killed his creator, Dr. West. And we were two out in the open, 
and he could easily grab one of us from the middle of the hallway if he played his cards right. So I turned to the team, whispering about us marching in a formation that could allow us to watch every possible angle as we moved. Ward and Melody, you both watch the back angles. Terrence and I look out for the front ones. We move quickly but quietly. You understood? I said as quietly as can be, keeping my ears open. No, we need to go back. You really think this is worth it? Ward, a whisper shouted. He'll kill us, and this will be all for nothing. This mission ain't worth it. Nothing that we do is worth it. And you're an idiot for agreeing to even do this in the first place. What? You gotta impress your goddess Jennifer, is that it? Ward, shut your mouth, I snapped. Just about being able to keep my voice at a whisper, despite my irritated state. You know you think you're so smart, but you're going to be the reason that we all end up dead. Ward continued, only angering the rest of us. Ward, shut up. Melody stepped in, spit flying out of her mouth right before she gritted her teeth. I'm going to make a run for her. And just before Ward could get his next word out, he was suddenly grabbed and snatched up towards the ceiling as the lights had flickered screaming and firing his weapon frantically and clumsily before it fell on the floor, causing all of us to come within inches of getting shot. Ward! I screamed as we immediately opened fire at the ceiling. It had all happened so fast. One second he was there and the next he was gone, pulled away like nothing more than a box of cardboard. My could hear his screams of pure terror and dread as what I assumed was 16A crawling along the ceiling with him in hand. I forgot just how fast and agile he was. It was clear that he had moved fast enough to evade our gunfire. Make it far enough away to chasing him would have only meant similar fates for the rest of us. Ward's fate was now out of our hands, as the three of us who still remained turned and halted down the opposite end of the hallway as his screams continued to fill in. But only for a few seconds, I could have sworn that I heard the sound of bone snapping followed by a swift plunge back into silence, save for our footsteps and heavy breathing. Melody had led the charge, but I wasn't far behind. Terrence took up the rear, but seeing as he was the biggest of us all, it wasn't surprising. The guy had packed on quite a bit of muscle in the past couple of years. For the time being, I'm not sure if 16A was in pursuit, but let's be honest, if he was, he would have already caught us long ago. In our universe, I had seen him outrun a Wendigo on more than one occasion, and those things are known for their speed. And the best thing to do now was to exit the building entirely. One of 16A's biggest combat advantages was his ability to scale nearly any surface and climb like a freaking spider everywhere. If we take him out of his element, we may have a better chance. Come on, I commanded, knowing full well that it was pointless to be quiet anymore anyway. We turned a corner and made it back into the main area of the building, finding the big double doors of the entrance. I stopped once a few feet away and shot the lock off the doors before having Terrence run and bash his way through them, quickly following him along with Melody without even looking up from the ground. But once I did, I realized that they were both beyond lucky, and potentially even more screwed than before. Outside our universe's facility, 
It's mainly a long, bare road with some forest behind the building. But this, this wasn't even close. This version of Site 12 was an island. A small but stable looking one surrounded by strange murky water. If this universe had an ocean then this couldn't have been it. Unless ocean water here had much more in common with swamp water than seawater. The sun was yellow, the sky was blue, and everything else seemed to be similar. Everything except for the water. Regardless, we all ran as far away as we could from the building. About a quarter of a mile there was a dock at the end of this side of the island, but with no boats in sight. But if we could at the very least hold out at the end of the dock and keep our guns pointed straight ahead, he wouldn't be able to get to us. But eventually, we did have to make it back to the portal. Not that he knew that. I caught a glimpse of something shiny slightly out of my left shoulder. After moving my eyes slightly in order to get a better idea of what exactly it was, I was able to mentally relax, but only a little bit. The substance was a dark blue, thick but runny liquid, about six or seven drops worth. But it wasn't long before it clicked in my head as to where it came from. It was blood. Some of 16A's blood. Perhaps we had actually hit or struck him with a bit of gunfire after all. Although judging by how much there was combined with his healing abilities, it couldn't have been fatal nor serious. The rounds that we used were armor-piercing and very powerful. Our version of 16A was resistant to low-caliber gunfire, according to Dr. West, so I'm sure this doppelganger was no different. You shoot any normal man with the bullets that we use and he'll be turned into mush. But 16A could take a few shots without a crazy amount of pain or injury. I was huffing and puffing at this point in our escape. But running full speed in heavy equipment and tactical gear will do that to you. Luckily, we all just about had the stamina left to make it to the end of the dock. I turned around, looking for any leftover helicopters. I had no pilot or avian certifications, but heck, I didn't care. I'd try flying one regardless in this situation. But of course, luck was not on our side. So, we stuck with the dock plan. Melody was the first one to recover and catch her breath after the whole running ordeal. Raising her gun towards the facility in a slightly shaking manner. I followed suit next, marrying her stance. Terrence, however, looked really out of it. He struggled to fully recover and was standing close to the edge of the dock as he inhaled and exhaled rapidly. And when I say close, I mean a little too close. So I turned to go help him while Melody kept watching the open field in front of us. I reached down around my mostly empty utility belt and grabbed my leather-wrapped flask filled with water. Popping off the cover and reaching out to give it to him, as I attempted to nudge him away from the edge. Here, drink this. And that's an order. We need you strong, big guy. I told him firmly as he reached out for it, seemingly grateful for the offer. I never knew why only the leading agent got to have a flask of water on them during operations, but that was the rule that worried me the least in this organization. But just as his fingers gripped the flask, the dock suddenly and violently shook causing both of us to lose our balance and fall right over the side. We plunged into the water, our rifles and gear coming with us. I heard Melody yell out for both of us and for a moment I thought that would be it. 
that this strange, murky swamp water was filled with some alternate universe radiation that would instantly kill us, but no. For the most part, it felt and reacted like water usually did, although it was still incredibly hard to see. I was already six or so feet under the surface when I finally got a hold of myself. I looked down, seeing that Terrence had sunken even further in the nearly brown sea. I swam my way over to him, his lack of energy paradoxically keeping him in a panic state as he kicked his feet and flailed his arms aimlessly. He was always a half-decent swimmer, but the intensity of the situation was overcoming his ability to think rationally. Once I had grabbed a hold of him, I kicked as hard as I could and maneuvered my way through the water, back up towards the surface. Taking another look down as I did, and being met with a mundane horror. I watched as Terrence and I's rifles sank deep into the abyss below, along with the flask of water, never to be seen or retrieved again. It was terrifying, staring down into what seemed like an endless void of an ocean that was potentially even deeper and more monstrous than the one I was familiar with. I was both fascinated and horrified, and not many things caused me to feel that so easily. But this wasn't your immediate adrenaline-inducing terror, no. It was deeper, worse, and almost cosmically horrifying. I sat there, looking down on my legs hung above what could have been miles and miles of an abyss below. An abyss that I couldn't even see a mere fraction of. I swam up, quickly snapping myself out of a little episode. I dragged a Terrence with me, both of us breaking the surface and coughing up water before gasping for air. I looked back up at the dock, spotting Melody leaning over the side with a rifle next to her, holding out a hand for the both of us. By this point, I wasn't sure how long she had had her eyes taken off the door, and if 16A had gotten the chance to exit the building and come barreling towards us. I reached out for her hand first, a team effort occurred between the two of us in order to pull me up, as I groaned and strained my arms to do so. My soaking wet gear making it all the more difficult to raise my weight out of the water. Hey, Terrence cried out, causing me to turn my head after I had made it back up onto the dock. I glanced out behind him, squinting my eyes to get a better look at what it was that he was pointing at. It didn't take me long to find it though, and when I did... I knew that we had to get him out of here as quickly as we could. About 200 meters or so out, I spotted a near comically colossal creature swimming in our direction. It had to be 30 feet long bare minimum, and that estimate only came from what I saw above the surface. Speaking of which, it was several feet wide as well, resembling that of a sea slug. An absolutely massive sea slug. Its back was a darker purple with long, pointy spikes that were white at the tips, sticking straight out nearly every few square inches. Water displaced and bubbled up as the creature swam right towards us. It didn't appear to be very fast, but I couldn't tell if that was because it was swimming slowly on purpose or because it didn't think that we had noticed it yet. Part of me wondered how it had known that we were here. Was it the splashing? Probably. But as I reached out to grab Terrence's hand, I realized what actually made more sense. 16A's blood was now gone from my shoulder, 
This thing had smelled it after it had been dispersed into the water, and now Terence was in danger because of my clumsy decision making. I wasn't actually sure what normal sea slugs ate. Probably not humans, but considering both the size and the natural nature of this one, I wasn't going to take the chance. Once the creature was about 150 meters out, it dove under the surface and completely submerged itself. I ordered Melody to look down the scope of her rifle to keep an eye on it, while I began to pull Terrence up. She did, right after checking the building to see if 16A had made his way over her, and thank god he hadn't. I hoisted a Terrence up high enough for him to be able to grab a hold of the dock himself, allowing Melody to turn her attention back to the building. Terrence coughed and hacked up a bit of water once he finally laid on the wood of the dock, but that was to be expected. We need to move away from the dock. With how big that thing is, it could easily lunge its way up here and grab one of us like we're a snack on the top shelf of the grocery store. I announced rather frantically, reaching down to my belt and pulling out my sidearm, a 50 caliber Desert Eagle pistol. Terrence copied my action after getting himself to his feet. He, Melody, and I all shared glances with each other as we all backed away from the edge of the dock, attempting to keep ourselves out of harm's reach. But it didn't matter, because by the time we were only a few steps away, the creature broke the surface once again, sending a thin wall of water our way. Surprisingly, it didn't throw itself onto the dock, but rather swim around it, only about eight feet or so away. Now that it was up close, I got a better sense of scale as to just how massive this thing truly was. Although, I didn't want to find out how much more of its body was hidden beneath the murky water. I turned to Melody, who seemed confused as to why the creature hadn't attacked us yet, as it swam and circled the end of the dock like a shark. Was it sizing us up further? We got an answer, when a voice, a booming voice at that, that I could have sworn was only making noise inside my head suddenly emerged. Was this thing speaking to me telepathically or something? I considered that being the case at first until I saw both Terrence and Melody react to it as well. There are no more vessels for this water. Your fellow humans took the rest and long ago. If you're trying to escape the blue creature, you're too late. Why would they run? That's not a part of procedure at all. When there's a breach, agents are supposed to stay and fight until there's no one left. Only science and finance division employees get to leave immediately. Melody erupted. As much as I agreed with her, I was just stunned that this thing could talk coherently and intelligently like 16A. How many cryptids could? Not ones that I met anyway. Perhaps it didn't really want to violently tear us apart after all. I was blown away. And even though I was under the assumption that it was speaking to us telepathically, I still couldn't help but respond to it out loud. Are you here to hurt us? I inquired, hesitant to lower my weapon. If I am left unharmed, then no. But should you attack me, I would devour all three of you well thousands of feet within these depths. I held back the question that we all wanted to ask for a moment. I just wasn't sure how good it would sound to be recruiting a massive, unpredictable creature that I just met to help us kill one of the most dangerous cryptids to ever walk both this earth and ours. Can you help us? I paused for a moment, 
with killing the blue one. I know we look like the other humans you may have seen, but we've come from far away and with him alive, we won't be able to get back home. He won't let us. I cannot leave the water if it is your desire to kill him. He will have to be brought here. The slug responded just before diving back underneath the surface. The resulting displacement of the water causing a small wave to crash up against the side of the dock. Terrence, Melody, and I all share an uncomfortable silence and glance around at each other. I knew what they were thinking, but I was the one in charge and I was the one who needed to make sure that I stepped up. 16A could be harmed. After all, we made him bleed. He was fast, powerful, and smart, but not invincible. I reached out to Melody, giving her a look that I was in no mood to argue about what I was preparing to propose. I need the both of you to stay here. I'm going to go back and bait him. Are you kidding me? Terrence immediately erupted, gripping his gun noticeably tighter. He'll kill you in an instant. I flashed my eagle, giving a confident yet sarcastic smirk. If you encounter him, you'll have one chance at a headshot. If you miss or just wound him, he'll tear you apart, Melody argued. You can't go luring him over here alone. Thanks for the confidence boost, I clapped back, already beginning to head down the dock back towards the building. We don't have time for a council meeting. This decision is final. No, Terrence shouted after me. You have no chance. I didn't even look back before saying... Being the one in charge has its pros and cons. I was well aware that there was a fine line between bravery and stupidity, and I had certainly crossed it. But regardless, I had a job to do and we couldn't stay here much longer. Because if we did, we'd be stuck here forever and left to fend for ourselves. But I ignored any further pleas from Terrence and Melody to stay behind with them. Once I made it within a reasonable distance of the building, I peered into one of the windows, seeing that 16A was already lurking behind one of them, staring me down with those eerie light bulb eyes as I stopped right in my tracks. He was smart, a lot smarter than most would give him credit for, and for that very reason, I needed to use my head. Like my lady said, if he charged me and I didn't land a solid headshot, I'd be as good as dead. There was no way that I would outrun or outfight him in any universe. He had physical strength that would put a silverback gorilla to shame, and even that's a comical understatement. I know that we were too far away for him to even have heard our conversation with the giant sea slug, so he couldn't have possibly known about our little scheme. But by the look on his face through the glass, I could tell that he knew that I was playing at something. As soon as I lifted my weapon and pointed it at the window, he darted upwards along the wall, next to it on all fours and retreated into the darkness. He was waiting for me to come to him. I took a deep breath, gripped my eagle and continued on, now feeling death practically exhaling down my neck. I got to the door, aiming my gun as I slowly peered around the corners and looked up at the ceiling. I saw nothing at first but it brought me no form of comfort. I scanned every wall, every surface that I could, but he was far too skilled at keeping himself hidden. My adrenaline rush only increased further as I heard his voice coming from somewhere above, 
despite my inability to spot him. You've come to kill me, how pathetic. For decades, I'm nothing but a vessel for your slaughter. A killing machine, as you all called me. And yet, simultaneously, I was nothing to you. After all your ridicule and countless attempts to make me feel small and weak. Now, now you cower in fear when I finally know just how strong I am. You all wanted a monster. He paused, just before a loud thud erupted through the building, followed by the sight of him landing on the floor around 15 feet in front of me. And now you have one. He was now in a bipedal stance, towering above me with his monstrous 8-foot height. His skin was a slightly lighter blue than the 16A from our universe, but his claws looked just as long and just as deadly. Speaking of which, they had a fresh coating of blood on them, blood that I was certain belonged to Ward. So, you kill, slaughter, and tear us all apart, and what now? When do you stop this march of death and destruction? 16A took a few steps forward, only stopping when I aimed my eagle's barrel right at his forehead and rotated my pointer finger over to the side of the barrel, not daring to put it on the trigger in front of him. I wanted to take a shot and hopefully put him down right then and there, but he would be expecting it, and with his agility and speed, he was just at a far enough distance to where he'd be able to probably dodge it, and then I'd be toast. So we continued this little game of cat and mouse, I slowly backed away inch by inch as I attempted to keep him distracted with passionate conversation. I didn't want him to get the idea that I was intentionally trying to lead him away, but rather that I was attempting to escape out of fear for my life, which I'm sure he also had suspicions about. <laughs> I find your attempts at chastising me for causing chaos hypocritical. You, the other agents, and Dr. John... From the moment of my inception to now, you've shown me nothing but hatred of violence and cruelty. Only Dr. West ever dared to show me compassion and you all killed her for it, he growled, now raising a claw and spreading his hand, allowing the exposed parts of his fingernails to gleam in the dim light. At this point, I had backed myself past the doorframe at a few feet inside. 16A once again moved forward and my hands began to shake. If I truly was going to take a shot, it was either now or never. I let out a breath, disguising it as me gathering my thoughts. I gripped the handle and I fired. The 16A had already started moving before I even finished pulling the trigger. He dropped to all fours and pounced over to me to close the distance. And in an instant, stood to his feet and grabbed the gun from my hands with his left claw and crushed it like a marshmallow just before grabbing me by the throat with his right claw and raising me into the air like I was nothing more than a child's plaything. A shame. I considered even sparing you, but you are just like the rest of them, he said as I desperately gasped for a breath while he crushed my throat. Truth be told, I don't even think he had even begun consciously applying any pressure. The feeling of his claws just mere millimeters away from my jugular was enough to make sure that I didn't panic and get my own throat slit. But just before I was about to certainly meet the creator himself, a series of loud bangs rang out, just before his 16A roared in pain and tossed me over to the side like a mere box of cardboard. 
and I slammed into an outside wall of the building, and I was sure that I heard one of my ribs crack on impact. As I groaned, gripped my side, and turned my gaze over to the dock, 16A dropped to all fours and began sprinting his way right towards Terrence and Melody. I got up, running after them in a pained and limping manner. Of course, it was futile. There's no way that I would catch up to 16A, but I had to do something. I couldn't stay down, even if staying down meant that I didn't have to endure agony. He was hit a couple of times in what looked to be his lower body, slowing him down only a bit, but even still he moved at a speed that would eclipse a cheetah. I could feel Melody and Terrence's terror as he closed the hundreds and hundreds of feet of distance in mere seconds. He managed to evade most of the shots, but even in his slightly injured state, he kept on. The guy really could take a lot of punishment. Melody had run out of ammo on her rifle after falling to land any successful headshots, but she had no time at all to reload. Instead, she retrieved her deagle and began to aim it just as 16A was only a few dozen feet away. But it didn't matter. Terrence ran forward, attempting to shield Melody from the blue beast and fire off a shot with his own eagle. But even with how huge he was, he looked like a toddler in comparison to 16A, who quickly leapt up to a bipedal stance and backhanded Terrence with his left claw, sending the big guy flying nearly 20 feet off the dock and crashing back into the murky water with a violent splash. The giant slug appeared to not be coming to help us. Should have known better after all than to trust a cryptid. Melody fires off two successful shots in the 16A's lower chest after he had maneuvered, causing him to roar and then lunge forward and snatch the gun of her before she could even react. He then turns and throws it at what looked to be a dang near mile away. The look he gave her after was a nothing but deep-seated rage. I continue limping forward, my awkward run doing nothing to help the feeling that, no matter what I did, I wouldn't be able to change the inevitable outcome of this horrible situation. Melody runs and attempts to jump off the dock and dive into the water, but instead was caught mid-air by 16A, who grabbed her by the back and proceeded to throw her several feet backwards onto the dock. She slid across the wood on her back, howling in pain as she reached down into her utility belt and grabbed an unidentified object that I couldn't make out at first. 16A dropped down and pounced over towards her before raising a claw, preparing to quite literally slice her apart like mincemeat. But when she raised the object up, only then did I realize what it actually was. A grenade, and one that she had already pulled the pin off of. 16A reacted like a frightened child, Opting to stand, lean down and quickly grab her leg with a claw before her, slinging her dozens of feet away off the dock and into the water. But I could see that just before a 16A had let go, she had purposely dropped it onto the dock. It was clear that little stunt was intended to save her life, rather than thinking it would have actually worked to kill him. 16A turned his head after watching Melody's body collide into the water, only to see the grenade was now right at his feet. He backed up as quickly as possible, only getting about two large steps away before it exploded, sending him flying back into the water as well, albeit still alive but not more wounded than previously. A chunk of the midsection of the dock had been blown apart, sending boards and logs into the water below. After several more seconds of my limped run, I finally made it to the edge of the dock, 
huffing and puffing to catch my breath while I held my side. Terrence had already broken the surface, seeing me holding my side and doing his best to get himself out of the water. Did you see Melody down there? I asked, genuinely wondering if she had sustained damage from such a harsh throw. Yeah, he coughed, grabbing the top of the dock as he hoisted himself up. Melody emerged from the depths not too long after and began quickly swimming her way over with a bit of struggle. I saw a trail of blood following her in the water, indicating that 16A had cut her with his claws while in the midst of roughly grabbing and tossing her off the dock. Hurry, I snarled. Terrence bent down to help her out, seeing as I was in no condition to be straining myself past this point. After she was on the dock, I looked just where the source of the bleeding was, which had turned out to be her calf. The slash itself didn't appear very deep or serious, but I nonetheless pulled a cloth out from my belt and wrapped it around her wound, tightening it to stop the bleeding. You're a heck of a fighter. Can you still walk? I inquired, helping her stand up. She noticed me holding my side, allowing both me, her, and Terrence to all briefly brag that we had encountered one of the most dangerous beings ever and lived to tell the tale. It stings, but yeah, I can manage. We need to hurry and get back to the gateway. We have less than seven minutes. I, Terrence, and Melody, with a bit of a lamb, all begin to quickly make our way toward the beginning of the dock, only to be stopped dead in our tracks by 16A, who had emerged from the water and leapt up onto the dock. It was clear that he had taken more initial damage from the blast than I thought. Starting from his right shoulder all the way next to his right eye, he had horribly charred skin, indicating burns from the heat of the grenade explosion, as well as what looked to be several cuts and gashes from a shrapnel being blasted into him, which were on top of his several gunshot wounds. Now, while I think the damage he sustained would have killed any regular man several times over, he was obviously not a regular nor a man. He didn't waste any time with any monologues or speeches. Instead, he dropped down on all fours yet again and prepared to lunge over the hole in the dock right next to us. And in that moment, I truly thought that was the end, with no significant weapons left to defend ourselves, and we'd be toast. But just after he had left and was in midair, something rather shocking transpired. The giant sea slug bursted up from below like a bullet train, crashing and destroying even more of the dock as he did so while grabbing 16A right in his jaws, which were now revealed to have several rows of black teeth all shaped like jagged pizza cutters. 16A roared and cried out in pain as the sea slug thrashed around with him in his mouth. 16A clawed and lacerated the sea slug's face enough to draw blood, but it was admittedly pointless. Large amounts of 16A's blood began to pour down the sides of the sea slug's mouth, and it had been clear who was truly going to leave this encounter alive. The sea slug then retracts back down into the water below, bringing 16A with him, as we all watched like flabbergasted children. I leaned over, seeing the water below fill with a midnight blue color, a telltale sign that 16A was no more. Or at least, it wouldn't be soon enough. I guess you can trust cryptids after all. I uttered in pure shock but also grand relief. But we didn't have time to celebrate. We had to make it back. 
First, by maneuvering our way around the now colossal hole in the dock with falling back into the water and then booking it once we made it back out of the island itself. We all ran as fast as we could one last time, this time with Melody taking the rear due to her leg, but she was still able to move reasonably well. I turned back multiple times as we covered distance in order to make sure that she was still with us. Terrence was at the front while I still kept a hand to my side. Two minutes, she bellowed, only making our hearts pump faster as we approached the building. Terrence waved us both in as we made it into the main doorway, immediately doing a quick turn to the right and running down the hall to the science wing. We passed a few agent bodies that we hadn't seen the first time. Still more blood and weapons scattered about in the hallway, but there was nothing that we could do for them now. It wasn't long before we found the room with the gateway. It sat at the end of the hall, the symbol that we were almost out of this nightmare of an operation. We made it to the doorway of the room and turned the corner, feeling that same magnetic pull towards the opposite wall of the entrance. The gateway was becoming unstable. Papers, pens, and all sorts of objects going flying across the expanse of the room towards it. Come on, go, 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 I ordered, stepping to the side. I stayed behind, allowing both Terrence and Melody to go first, watching as they disappeared into the black void. I took one look back, cementing the fact that I was more than happy to leave this place of a universe behind. What happened here was nothing that we could change, but something told me it was a warning. A warning that things could have turned out much differently had certain events transpired with only subtle changes. I turned, jumping into the gateway and landing back into our reality with Jennifer, Dr. Garth, Terrence, and Melody all waiting for me, as well as a couple of extra scientists. Close it! Close it now! Jennifer ordered Garth and the other lab coats who frantically typed away at a panel on the far side of the room and hit several buttons in a purposeful pattern. I leaned over the desk, where Jennifer was seated at, exhaling heavily as she looked at me with concern. Where's Agent Ward? Was all that she could muster to ask. But the look that I gave her in response said it all then as she soon made the connection. A look of disappointment in her eyes. I knew that she wanted me to tell her more to describe everything we experienced and saw. But for the moment, I could only say four simple words. Never open it again. I joined a cult in the 80s. It's time to pay my membership fee. Written by Red Hot Owl. It may be hard to believe, but before I became the bloated, old drunk you see camping outside your local liquor store, I used to be quite the guy back in my prime. I was young, athletic, had a full set of long, sandy hair and a jawline so sharp that it could cut glass. When I wasn't pumping iron at the gym, I was probably out there pumping somebody's wife. What can I say? It was the 80s and I'm from West Hollywood. Debauchery was sort of the norm back then. After I flunked out of college and my parents practically disowned me, my life became a self-perpetuating spiral of women and drugs, alcohol, and glam metal. And the parties were wild and sobriety was a sin, and I wouldn't have had it any other way. I couldn't tell you where or how we first met, 
Could have been at a bar, a street corner, a nightclub. Honestly, it doesn't really matter. Her name was Rachel. She wasn't the most gorgeous girl that I had ever seen or anything like that. Curly brown hair, plaid skirt, thick rimmed glasses. Everything about her was so incredibly mediocre that it seemed almost deliberate. As though she had gone to excessive lengths to not stand out in a crowd. Following a fittingly average night with her, imagine my surprise when she suddenly turned around and said to me, You want to join a cult? Upon processing the unconventional and unusually candid proposal, a sensible person would have probably responded with a very definitive, Heck no. I, however, wasn't and never had been a sensible man, as evident by the fact that I didn't immediately gather my clothes and head for the door. I was taken aback, sure, but I'd be lying if I said that my morbid curiosity wasn't piqued. It was the sheer novelty of the experience that intrigued me. I was still in that period of early adulthood when you feel like nothing can touch you. So you hop from thrill to thrill regardless of any potential consequences. Besides, I figured that it couldn't have been anything that malicious, given how casual she was about it. And so at around 10pm the following day, there I was, standing in the middle of an abandoned parking lot outside of town. Before me was an old warehouse that should have been equally as abandoned, and yet there were lights and faint music emanating from somewhere within its bowels. I narrowed my eyes and stepped towards the neglected structure. Although surprisingly intact, the windows were made of thick, semi-transparent glass. I could only see vague shapes moving about the illuminated interior. I bypassed the set of old doors that looked to have rusted shut, and instead made my way over to the opposite side of the property. Sure enough, Hidden behind several overflowing dumpsters and a mound of scrap metal was another door. There was something scribbled on it in bright pink graffiti. Enlightenment through excess. Deliverance through pleasure. Sure seemed like the right place. I walked up to the alternate entrance and pressed my knuckles to its corroded surface, knocking twice as per Rachel's instructions. After a few tense seconds, the bottom of the heavy steel door scraped against the concrete as it got yanked ajar. A single, monolith eye stared back at me through the gap. Judging by what little I could see of the woman's expression, she definitely liked what she saw. Evening hot stuff, you got a password for me. Uh, right, yeah, um, Lord of the Flies, I answered quizzically. Her lips formed a playful grin, or at least the half of one. I instinctively stepped back as the thick fingers of a man emerged from the narrow slit, gripping the side of the door and pulling it wide open. The squealing of its unoiled hinges caused me to grip my teeth. Standing on the other side of that threshold, bathed in the ambient glow radiating from within, was a giant... I was no whip myself, but the leather-clad viking looked capable of breaking every bone in my 6-1 frame and wearing my limp body like a scarf. Leaning against him was the young Asian woman, still bearing that same grin, with her neon green lipstick, fishnet outfit, and rainbow pigtails. She was the personification of the stereotypical rave-goer, quite the contrast to her stoic, heavily tattooed counterpart. 
She beckoned to me down the dimly lit hallway behind her and then through what appeared to have once been a cafeteria. The laughter and the music were getting louder. We eventually came up to yet another door. This one decorated in various outdated safety tips and warnings directed at the staff that used to work here. My colorful guide placed her hand on the handle and winked back at me before pushing it down. Have fun. Awaiting me on the other side was what I can only describe as a cesspool of degeneracy. Bodies on bodies, writhing and moaning, screwing like the end of the world was nigh. Much to the enjoyment of clearly intoxicated onlookers. What passed as a dance floor was littered with clothes and empty bottles. Cheap perfume intermixed with sweat polluted the stagnant air. The sickeningly sweet concoction made me feel lightheaded. My skull pulsated in tune with the generic synth-pop beat that poured from the speakers, which only partially masked the sound of flash slapping against flash. Rachel was there too, sandwiched between two jocks and reduced to a babbling mess. I guessed that she had been holding out on me, or perhaps the unassuming persona was a means of luring people in. It wasn't long until I too got added to the party, courtesy of an eager redhead grabbing a hold of me. Before I knew it, she had unbuckled me and was dragging me down with her. After the spree of indulgence had reached its inevitable climax, both figuratively and literally, everyone's attention fell squarely on me. Rachel in particular seemed quite pleased that I decided to show up. She was the first to officially welcome me into the house of exorbitance, and then revealed herself as the cult's de facto leader. Their mission, as she had explained it to me, was simple. Enjoy life to its fullest until you no longer can, and then go out in a blaze of glory. She went on to assure me that there was no pressure on becoming a full-fledged member just yet, and that I was free to attend their annual group activities whenever I felt like it. And so, for a while, that's just what I did. As fun as the free booze and the redhead were, it was actually the sense of community that kept me coming back. Like me, all of them were failures and societal outcasts who just wanted to have a good time. I was introduced to new experiences, taken to places that I had never been before, partook in drug-fueled pseudo-intellectual discussions until the wee hours of the morning. It came as a surprise to no one when I expressed interest in formally joining just a few months later. The initiation ceremony was very much on brand. I was to get high off my butt and hit as many clubs as I could, getting progressively more inebriated until I could no longer remember my own name. The night melted into a soup of bright colors and forbidden sensations. The city. She's a fickle one. She makes a young man feel like the king of Sunset Strip one moment, and like a vagabond the next. She promises him the world, only to reduce him to another junkie wandering her neon lit streets looking for his next fix. And then when he's at his most vulnerable and pathetic, she casts a spotlight on him and tells him to dance. And I danced. Boy oh boy did I dance. I danced until my legs gave out and then I danced some more. All for the amusement of the other lost souls, stuck to this plane of vice and glamour. I genuinely had no idea how I ended up in the back of that taxi. 
The driver, a dark man with slicked curly hair and a pencil-thin mustache, was looking at me through the rearview mirror. I found it odd that he was wearing sunglasses despite it being pitch black outside. Where to, son? He asked with his deep, baritone voice. My face felt numb. It was like I had someone else's lips sewn on top of my own. Home was all that I could think to say. The man flashed me a pitying smile, placed one hand on the steering wheel and adjusted the radio with the other. His voice blended with the smooth jazz. Right on. I pressed my forehead to the cold glass, observing the lights as they zipped by. I wasn't exactly sober yet. Certain colors still appeared more saturated than they should have, but the fact that I could formulate coherent thoughts was nothing short of a miracle, considering the cocktail of substances circulating through my system. As we reached our first stoplight, the man glanced back at me once more. So, how's Rachel? She treating you well. Surprised, I rubbed the haze from my eyes and met his curious at knowing reflection. Uh, you a member of the house too? I don't think I've seen you before. The man chuckled. Yeah, that's sort of the point. Think of me as the sponsor of your little club. A concerned benefactor, if you will. My friends call me Bob, and I do hope we can be friends. Sponsor? I witlessly inquired. The man sung back against his leather chair and tapped his fingers on the mahogany desk that now separated us. The scene had shifted to an office space, complete with a drab wallpaper and a minimalistic decor. The abrupt transition might seem jarring in hindsight, but it somehow felt natural at the time. It was as if reality was suddenly running on dream logic and much like a dream, one rarely stops and questions its authenticity. That's right. The booze, the drugs, and most of the girls all paid for by yours truly. Ah, uh, but that's uh, just an appetizer. The driver, now donning the skin of a shrewd businessman, took a whiff from his cigar and nudged a sack of papers my way. They slid across the polished surface with little resistance, forcing me to catch them before they fell. It's all there. You can read it if you want. The standard membership is ten years. Just sign your name on the dotted line and you get a whole decade to live the life you've always wanted, free of all responsibilities. Think about it, brother. The party never has to stop. I examined the contract. It was written in what looked like a foreign scripture, yet I could still understand it as though if it were plain English, the words of warping as I read them. I tossed the papers back on the table. They slapped against the wet asphalt instead. And what happens after that? I asked with an understandable degree of skepticism. The mysterious man who had identified himself as Bob rubbed his chin. The headlights of passing cars briefly illuminated his features. And the ever-fluctuating scenery remolded itself around us once more. I found myself standing in the middle of a dank alleyway. Rain had dribbled from the sky accumulating in greasy ponds of diluted grime and filth, as clouds of rising fog enveloped us both. It was a frame straight out of an old noir film. You ask a lot of questions, don't you? It's good. I like that. 
The man remarked before lowering his sunglasses and revealing the pair of unsteadily blue eyes concealed beneath. I felt cold just looking at them. The price is firm. Once your membership is up, I get your soul. Simple as that. He explained with the casual enthusiasm of a used car salesman. I looked down at the stack of papers lying at my feet. The rain was starting to soak through the pages, smudging some of the ink. I pressed the man further. So, I get to party for ten years and then spend an eternity in hell. I'll be honest, it doesn't sound like a great deal. Bob's bellowing laughter echoed across the sea. We were now standing on a pier, side by side instead of facing each other. The purple sun was starting to rise on the horizon, dyeing the sky in shades of pink. I saw a herd of zebras run across the still water. One of the animals halted and turned towards me, peering at me through the vertical yellow eye in the middle of its head before trotting off as well. I couldn't help but be entranced by the psychedelic vista unfolding before us. That's not how it works, son. Once you're gone, you're gone. Lights out. There are no pearly gates or fire and brimstone waiting for you on the other side. Your soul returns to the big old great cosmic soup. All I want to do is put in some actual use. Think of it like donating an organ, if it makes you feel any better. The man reached inside his suit jacket and produced what looked to be a Polaroid, and then proceeded to wave it at my face. All right, he said. Here's your final offer. You get 20 years to do whatever the heck you want. I'm talking complete financial independence without ever having to lift a finger. And if you're smart with it, a lot more than that. By the time you're 40, you could still be having the time of your life with some girl half your age. But there is one condition. He handed me the photo. It was a headshot of Aiko, the flirty Asian girl who usually manages the door alongside with her behemoth of a boyfriend. Scribbled on the back of the picture was an address. Bud was quick to allay my concerns. All you need to do is deliver a package, nothing more. Once you do that, I'll consider our deal finalized. I do it myself, but I like maintaining a more hands-off approach, if you know what I mean. I chewed on the inside of my cheek and glanced back to the rear door glass. We were parked outside of my rundown apartment complex. I exchanged a nod with the driver and promptly exited the taxi. As I ascended the steps to my room, wondering how much of our conversation was just the byproduct of a bad trip, I spotted a small cardboard box placed on my doorstep. It was taped shut and had Echo's address written on it once more along with a big do-not-open sticker addressed to me. Now, to most of you reading this, a decade or two of unbridled decadence might seem like an incredibly short time to be trading your soul for. But to a dropout and all-around meathead like myself, who always thought that they wouldn't live long enough to see their 30s, the proposal was actually quite tempting. Since joining the cult... My lifestyle had prevented me from holding down jobs and the bills were piling up. I was weeks away from getting evicted. In the end, I decided that this literally once-in-a-lifetime opportunity was simply too good to pass up. So I did exactly what was asked of me that very next morning. The first check from my mysterious benefactor arrived shortly after. And let's just say that the sum was more than a substantial... We never saw Aiko or her boyfriend again, 
After a while, I didn't even need the cult anymore. Why go to a grimy warehouse to get my rocks off when I could host parties on my private yacht full of high-class individuals? To say that I was living at large would have been an understatement. I bought casinos, hotels, an island in the Caribbean, all because I could. And then in the early 2000s, it all came crashing down. From one of the most prominent playboys in Hollywood, I became a nobody almost overnight. My bank accounts were drained, my properties seized. Predictably, my wife let me soon after and took what remaining assets that I had with her. I had been living off my dead parents' savings and the occasional handout ever since. Honestly, I'm surprised that I'm still kicking in spite of all of it, though that won't be the case for long. Yesterday, I received a package from an unknown sender, not unlike the one that I delivered all those years ago. It's currently sitting next to me. In it is a revolver with a single bullet in the chamber and a note attached to it. The note reads, Dear Luke, your membership has expired and your payment is way overdue. The house of exorbitance has been lenient with you thus far, but the time has come to collect. I trust you won't disappoint me. Your friend, Bub. There's a tree in my hometown with roots so deep they stretch all the way to hell. Written by Lighting Nations. Lily was anxious about our winter getaway, and I mean who could blame her? Last week, two drunken pricks over on 5th Avenue called us some inappropriate things for refusing to make out in front of them, so I can only imagine the sort of reception she expected from a backward spot like my hometown. But we really needed some space from her father, and besides, people here are fairly progressive in an odd sort of way. You see, my hometown's a strange, strange place. Things happen here. It's the kind of place where you'll see a grandpa stroll along Main Street two weeks after his funeral. The kind of place where if your daughter disappears, you don't go looking for her. Because you know full well if the poor girl's still alive, you wouldn't ever, ever want her to come home. It's the kind of place where something as messed up as a living tree grows. In a place like that, nobody bats an eyelid at two ladies holding hands. Our trip started off great. My mom insisted Lily try her world-famous double peanut pie, and Dad actually got up off his recliner for the introductions. In his world, that's a grand gesture. As we pulled on our jackets, getting to leave, he said, Got any fun plans while you're here? We're gonna go for a hike, Lily replied. I've been wanting to get a picture from the top of those hills outside of town since we got here. An intense glare from Dad wiped the smile off her face. In an upbeat tone, I quickly added, But we'll be sticking to the trail, obviously. He narrowed his eyes and nodded slightly. Well, just be careful. Because I had moved away years ago, Dad made a point to constantly remind me of the dangers that our town posed, as if they weren't forever seared into my memory. Lily and I hiked along a trail which cut through the forest on the western side of town. 
after several days of snowfall, the horizon had been entirely painted white. A chafing wind turned Lily's rosy cheeks redder than usual, and only a few golden locks peeked out beneath her woolly hat. The phone reception in this part of the world is terrible and the best of conditions, but at one point the weather cleared up, enough to make Lily's phone buzz. It's him, she said, her voice suddenly flat. He's here. There were 27 missed calls, all from her father. He should have never been able to find us. My hometown is enlisted on any map and there are no signpostings. That meant Lily had drip-fed him information about our trip, even though I specifically told her not to. She let the voicemails play. Since our last encounter with the guy, he had been hard at the bottle and was demanding Lily return home with him. I loved her to the moon and back, but she was forgiving to a point of fault. Even after almost 30 years of putting up with it, she still loved and hated that man in equal parts, which meant she never stopped trying to repair the relationship, no matter how many times he had burned her. Heck, her entire left arm was still an ugly purple bruise from their last run-in. The mere sight of him would bring back the panic attacks, her insomnia. She shook her head, her deep blue eyes already swelling with tears and looked so wounded, so upset, that it crushed the breath right out of me. I wanted to kill that man. We contemplated cutting our trip short and catching a last-minute flight to Fiji, but then we heard footsteps crunching through snow, accompanied by a slurred voice screaming, Lily! My hometown is just two streets, with a blinking light to mark an intersection, meaning that we weren't difficult to find. Lily's dad proudly drove around until he spotted her Civic and then followed our tracks. Come on, I said, this way. There was another route that looped back towards the car park. Lily stood, cemented on the spot like a child caught with their hand in the cookie jar, until I put my hands on her winter-blushed cheeks and said, Look at me. Lily, look at me. I promise everything's gonna be okay, but we've gotta go. The two of us broke from the path, cutting across a frozen creek, past a handmade warning sign, and battled through an uphill trail filled with scrub. The dense undergrowth reached my chest and Lily's waist. Soon the pair of us stunk of pine sap. As we cut across the ridge of a steep hill, it appeared to our left, the living tree. The tree, a cancerous growth upon the hilltop, had a thick bow that looped in every direction. Icicles hung from its twisted branches, and sparrows and squirrels seemed to shun the vile thing. I shuddered, and not only from the ferocious wind, our roots would take us dangerously close. Hot on our tracks, Lily's father appeared at the mouth of the clearing. The second that he appeared, her demeanor became that of a six-year-old child, too scared to move or even speak. Lily, I said, louder than intended, before quickly covering my mouth. A chill raced along my spine and as I glanced in the direction of the cursed hilltop, quietly, I laced my gloved fingers with hers and dragged her along, traveling slowly, too slowly, while their father trailed close behind.
Crossing the ridge, we each slipped once and then twice. Our pursuer quickly caught up and then tackled me from behind. When I flipped over, he had Lily's hair, her beautiful blonde hair clenched in his fist. He pushed his face right next to hers and clenched his jaw and said, You ungrateful little thing. After everything I've done for you, this is how you repay me. Wads of saliva flew from his lips. Even from the ground, he could taste his foul whiskey breath. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Lily stammered. She squeezed her eyes shut as though trying to make the world and everything in it disappear. The evil guy looked down at me. This time she's coming home for good. Do you understand? You poisoned her mind for long enough. Absolutely furious, I shot back with. Haven't you hurt her enough already? Hurt her? He yelled, clearly offended by the accusation. You're ruining her life. Why can't you just leave us alone? I'm not ruining her life. I'm not. I'm not. When he said it the third time, I wondered who he really wanted to convince. She's my daughter. Do you think I'd hurt my own flesh and blood? I'm here because I care about her. So just stay the heck away from us. You got it? A sound like a squeak escaped Lily's throat as he held her hair like a rope and squeezed, pulled and twisted, dragging her away, his back to me. Lily held onto her skull and kicked both legs, shrieking wildly. Amped on rage and adrenaline, I popped up, charged forward and vaulted onto her dad's back, and I gouged my nails across his forehead. But he played linebacker in college while I was an art nerd who had flunked out of gym class so he simply reached around and flipped me onto the ground, the cold and brutal ground with barely any effort. The world flipped upside down and then wet snow slid down the back of my jacket. He stood over me, one foot on either side of my skull, his daughter still in his grasp. Despite Lily pleading with him not to hurt me, he treated me with two swift kicks in the ribs. They both stung like a hornet, but I couldn't scream because oxygen forced its way out of my lungs and my body temporarily forgot how to draw back in. To finish, he brought the heel of his heavy boot down on my nose. There was an audible sound like twig snapping and then my mouth became disgustingly hot. I could taste blood. My mouth was flooded with it, warmer than bathwater, red bubbles inflated beneath my nostrils. Lily's father leaned over, his facial muscles twitching so fiercely, I expected a vein to burst. And then, in a dead serious tone, said, Come near my daughter again, and I'll kill you. Through the haze, it sounded like he was a long way off, or possibly underwater. I kept trying to tell him to go screw himself, but I was too busy practically suffocating. He dragged Lily away in the direction that we came. She tried to resist, but that only made him more upset. So he slapped her in the face again and again. Soon, a tennis ball-sized lump forced her left eye to close. I couldn't stand it, seeing the woman that I adored so fiercely broken and helpless. And at that moment, I saw the vicious cycle play out again and again. Her father would never let her go. She would never stop forgiving him, 
because he was her only living relative, which meant she still craved his love and acceptance, despite all the awful stuff that he had pulled. There was only one way to stop this horrible sequence of events, to put everyone out of their misery. I flipped on my front end, I gasped for air, my chest hurting with every desperate breath. I felt sure that I was going to be sick. Everything had turned red, my chin, the front of my jacket, my gloves. First, I tried to stand, but my legs refused to support my weight, so I crawled instead, using my left arm as a crutch. Every time it lifted above my head, thousands of nails stabbed my ribs. Up ahead, the soil around the living tree was harder than frozen earth. That close that you could detect a change in the atmosphere. I kept crawling. In my hometown, there's a fierce debate as to the source of the tree's power. Some believe that it's exceptionally old, with roots so deep they stretch all the way to hell, and that's what fuels the town's strangeness. Personally, I believe it's the other way around, that the tree just happened to grow in an especially strange part of the world. But at that moment, the argument almost seemed irrelevant. I grabbed onto a lower branch before hoisting myself up and pushing my mouth close to a hollow in the trunk. Very little light pierced the spiderweb of branches above my head. Wait, this is crazy. Surely there had to be another way. Still in a daze, I looked back. Halfway toward the clearing, Lily had grabbed her dad's hand and bit his fingers hard. And when he finally let go, she scrambled away on her hands and thighs. From that distance, their argument was a low murmur. He ordered her to get back, to drop before his feet like he was freaking a sultan or a king. And when she shook her head and retreated even further, his manner completely changed. His anger gave way to sadness and he pleaded with her. He even got down on his knees and reached out, begging her to go with him. But whenever she shook her head, his sadness gave way to anger. And then he reached into his jacket, pulled out a pistol, and looked in my direction. Of course, it wasn't his fault the relationship with his daughter had broken down. Oh no, it was mine. I had driven the emotional wedge between them. He couldn't possibly be in the wrong. To win his daughter back, he just had to kill me. He took aim and fired. In his drunken state, the idiot sent a bullet into the sky. I'm not sure what terrified me more, the idea of him hitting me or hitting the tree. He scaled the hill, quickly closing in. Now I really had no choice. Before I could speak, I had to get some of the blood out by spitting. It came out in a thick wad followed by a stringy drool. I wiped the corner of my mouth, leaned into the tree's hollow and whispered a name. For all of my education and values, I now felt something dark and beyond reason deep inside of me. It's a hard thing to admit, even to myself that I was ever capable of such evil. Icicles snapped and snow worked loose off the branches. Where my hand had touched bark, I felt a great draining sensation. My soul getting pulled out through my palm, I remember thinking. There came a brief, sharp cry as Lily's father plummeted face first into the snow. He didn't even know what hit him. Dad? 
Lily whimpered, and then sprinted over and shook his shoulders. I half limped, half shuffled towards them. By the time that I had reached Lily, the blood on my face had frozen solid. Together, we rolled her father onto his back so she could perform chest compressions and put her thumb against his wrist, periodically stopping to promise him everything would be alright, that he would pull through. But I knew better. Once someone whispers your name to the living tree, that's it. Good night, end of story. Once it became obvious that he couldn't be resuscitated, Lily buried her face in her father's chest and wept. Snow began to fall, quickly filling the hollows of his jacket. I threw my arms around her and pressed her head tight against mine, rocking her back and forth the way you would cradle a baby. She shook her head. She shook all over actually and grabbed my arms, her fingernails digging into my flesh. Are you okay? She asked, finally registering the blood along my chin, the huge dent in my nose. I'm fine, I wheezed. Secretly, it hurt to speak. In my mind's eye, the living tree buzzed and sang and laughed. No, nothing was okay. For Lily, the nightmare was over and she was free. For me, however, there would be consequences. Dire consequences. Because anytime somebody whispers a name to the tree, the full terrors of my hometown crash down upon them. The horror would come. Sooner or later, they most definitely come. If I got lucky, my parents would simply find me dead one morning. Black fluid is seeping from my mouth. My ribs blossoming from my chest. And afterward, they would receive nasty anonymous phone calls. There'd maybe even be a burning bag of poop or two left on the front porch. A punishment for their daughter's perceived sins. But if I got unlucky, then let's just say the safest thing to do would be to send Lily back to New York, alone before things heated up. I cupped my hands to her chin and kissed her forehead, and then pushed our cheeks together. Our relationship was coming to an end, but at least for a little while, I could enjoy the heating comfort of her body. Thank you all for making it to the end of this week's podcast. I really appreciate you sticking around throughout the stories. I also really appreciate this week's sponsor, HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16 and use code MrCreep16 for up to 16 free meals and 3 free gifts. I hope you're all having a great start to the month of May. I'm looking forward to another month full of awesome stories from some amazing authors. I hope you have a great morning, day or night, and as always, stay creepy.